Good morning. Today is Wednesday, September 20th, 2023. This is a regular meeting of the Building Inspection Commission. I would like to remind everyone to please mute yourself if you're not speaking. The first item on the agenda is roll call. Commissioner Alexander Toot. Here. I'm sorry, uh, Interim President Alexander Toot. Um, Commissioner Chavez. Here. Commissioner Newman. Here. Commissioner Shaddix. Commissioner Summer. She is attending, there she is. Here. Thank you. And Commissioner Williams. Here. Okay, we have a quorum. Um, Commissioner Summer is in attendance. She's attending remotely today. And um, next, uh, she will read our land acknowledgement. Good morning, can you guys hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Uh, the Building Inspection Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatish Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatish Ohlone have never ceded, lost, or forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as, well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Raymond Loney community and by affirming their rights, their soft rights as first people. Thank you. Um, and next, for members of the public who may be listening in, the, um, the listen public comment call in number is 415 655 0001. The access code is 2662-497-4269. To raise your hand for public comment on a specific agenda item, press star three when prompted by the meeting moderator. Okay, next we have um, item two, President's opening remarks. All right. um, good morning, uh, commissioners, director, members of the public. Um, first, congratulations to Commissioner Summer on the birth of your baby. Um, the goals. <laughs> the, um, the goals of today's meeting are: we're going to nominate and fill our subcommittee. Um, during the director's report, we will have an extended discussion around on the finance report, where we'll cover the year-end finances, the budget timeline, um, our August fina finances, as well as policy questions around the fee study, around um, funding, around questions of the of the BICS authority. Um, so that will be an extended. Um, opportunity uh, uh, to discuss finances in a more, in a more broad sense. Um, we are going to talk about the reforms update and we are returning to the quarterly reporting on the reforms and this is you know part of our crucial civic duty. It can be an uncomfortable conversation but it's you know one of the important focuses that we as a department as we as a commission all have. Um, we will also be previewing the policy recommendations on the facade glass uh, with a possible action next month. I want to make a comment uh, without revealing um, more of a, an uh, important personnel issue, but there was an incident where a member who received a notice of violation sent very threatening and scary messages to one of our staff members. This is unacceptable. This will never be tolerated. And I want to send a very clear message to the members of the public that this commission will not tolerate it, neither will the department, ever. 
And on that note, I, we have a lot of really great work to do today. And I want to um, commend the staff for all the work that has gone into planning for this commission and um, look forward to continuing our great commission business. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any public comment on the president's opening remarks? Um, seeing none, we have item three, general public comment. The BIC will take public comment on matters within the commission's jurisdiction that are not part of this agenda. there any remote public comment? Okay. okay. Seeing then next we have item four, discussion and possible action to appoint commissioners to serve on the litigation subcommittee. Um, currently, uh, uh, Interim President Alexander Toot is the only member of this subcommittee, so we have um, two vacancies. Is there anyone that is interested in volunteering to serve or willing to nominate somebody? Can we share how often the subcommittees meet oh, and, okay. and sort of the obligations uh, attached to each of the subcommittees before we go through the appointment process? Okay. Great idea, Commissioner. Um, can you also talk about like the, the chair nominating oh, process? And, and, sure. Thank you. Okay. So um, I had sent everyone emails, but for so that I guess everyone is currently aware. Um, the litigation subcommittee in general, um, members of the litigation committee hold confidential closed session meetings um, where the members review code enforcement services or housing inspection services cases that have compliance issues. And um, DBI, DBI staff presents reports on various cases and reasons why they would like the litigation committee to refer them to the city attorney's office for further action. Um, and then this committee uh, actually meets every other month on the, um, typically on the fourth Tuesday of the month at 12 p.m. Um, and in case there's a scheduling conflict, then we do, we may alter that schedule, but it's uh, every other month that this committee would meet. And yeah, so that's, that. is there any, oh, and uh, about the chair, so, um, there can be an election of a chair at the at the members first subcommittee meeting because we we need, we, uh, we need three members of each uh, subcommittee because before um, sometimes people have kind of just taken the role as chair but we didn't officially formalize that and interim president Alexander too would like us to kind of formalize that at the at the first meeting of the subcommittee. Are there any other questions from the commissioners about the process? So basically for this, people can either volunteer um, to, if they're interested in serving, or someone can um, suggest that someone, or they can kind of vote for someone else to serve, but they have to accept it. <laughs> <laughs> it's up to them. Well, it's up to them to accept it. We can't just make you serve. <laughs> I'll volunteer for the litigation subcommittee. Okay. Thank you. Is there another volunteer? I'd like to volunteer for the litigation subcommittee. Okay, thank you. So then there would be a motion to um, nominate um, Commissioners Alexander Toot, Commissioner Newman, and Commissioner Williams as members of the litigation committee. Um, oh, to appoint these members, I'm sorry, uh, motion to appoint the members to the subcommittee. Um, is there I'll make that motion. Okay. 
Thank you. Is there a second? I'll second. Who, who made the I'll second? I'll second. Okay, thank you. And is there any public comment on this motion? Um, seeing none, I'll do a roll call vote. Um, Interim President Alexander Toot? Yes. Commissioner Chavez? Yes. Commissioner Newman? Yes. Commissioner Shaddix? Yes. Commissioner Summer? Yes. And Commissioner Williams? Yes. Okay, the motion carries unanimously, and congratulations to the members. Okay, so next we have um, item <coughs> five. It is discussion and possible action to appoint commissioners to serve on the nomination subcommittee. And I'll read a little bit about this subcommittee. Um, in general, members of the nomination subcommittee hold open session meetings where the members periodically meet to address vacancies or appointments to the subcommittees which the BIC um, oversees. And these are the Board of Examiners, Code Advisory Committee, and Access Appeals Commission. Um, earlier this year, the subcommittee met to appoint and reappoint members to the AAC, BOE, and CAC. However, there are still outstanding vacancies on the Board of Examiners, which the subcommittee would be meeting about sometime soon. Once members are nominated, um, I'll reach out to you to coordinate a good date and time that would work for all the three members to, to meet. Um, currently, um, Commissioners uh, Newman and Summer are on this subcommittee. Um, I would, I guess, pose the question if they are both interested in continuing to serve, and then we can um, see about other uh, volunteers or appointments. I, I'm happy to let go of that seat if someone else wants to volunteer. Okay. Um, Commissioner Summer, are you interested in continuing to serve on the subcommittee? I'm happy to continue to serve. Okay, thank you. So then there would be um, two openings. And also just put out there, it's a, uh, this is a good committee for commissioners to kind of, uh, newer commissioners to kind of get their feet wet. And they, um, the committee meets kind of as needed. It's not on a regularly scheduled basis, but it's just whenever there's a need to either reappoint members or to fill vacancies. And, you know, so it, it could be up to four times a year, seven times a year. It just depends. It varies. Commissioner Shaddix. Thank you. Um, I'd like to volunteer for the um, nominations okay. committee. Okay. Thank you. And anyone else? I can volunteer for this one as well. Okay. Thank you. So there would be a motion to appoint Commissioners Summer, Shaddix, and Chavez to the nominations subcommittee. Um, is there a motion and a second? I motion. Second. Okay, so there's a motion and a second. Is there any public comment on this motion? I'm seeing none, I'll do a roll call vote. Interim President Alexander Toot? Yes. Commissioner Chavez? Yes. Commissioner Newman? Yes. Commissioner Shaddix? Yes. Commissioner Summer? Yes. And Commissioner Williams? Yes. 
Okay, the motion carries unanimously. Congratulations to the new members. Okay, so next we have item six. Um, and I guess before I read item six, the same thing applies as we mentioned in the litigation subcommittee. Upon the, the first meeting of the nomination subcommittee, um, the members can elect a chair. Okay. So for item six, uh, discussion and possible action to create a housing code enforcement subcommittee and to appoint commissioners to serve on the subcommittee. So are these two separate actions? Um, One following another Rob, makes sense, right? Uh, Deputy City Attorney Rob Kaplan, the, the first <clears throat> part here would be to discuss what the housing uh, code enforcement subcommittee would do. This would be a brand new committee, and you would have to vote on to whether to establish one. And then if you establish one, you could then vote to appoint members. Thank you. Um, so I would like to propose that we create a housing code enforcement committee um, that looks at trends um, in the that are happening in the housing division with the intention of creating policy or recommendations to the BIC regarding housing code or, and protecting the rental housing stock of San Francisco. Does anyone have any questions about the purpose of the committee or, think, or any thoughts? Okay, if, um, if commissioners are clear on that, then the next, so do we need to make a motion on, to establish the subcommittee? Yes. Okay. So there is a, a motion by Commissioner. Wait, can I oh. ask some questions? Okay. Yeah. So within our, I mean, within our, I, I understand wanting to go more in depth, but we do talk about the housing code enforcement piece, like it's a regular report, and I understand wanting to dig into it a little more deeply. Um, I just want to understand uh, a, a little more clearly what we hope to get out of it. I understand that it's, maybe the P part of the three P's of, of housing, right? Um, but uh, just a little bit more clarity, please. Yeah, absolutely. So there are, um, part of it is we don't know going into a, a committee of like exactly what will come out of it, right? I, if it was a very clear, these are the three policy pieces and we would just have those on the agenda. So it's a little more exploratory, um, whereas the commission is more, not so ex much exploratory. Um, there are, you know, there are discussions that have happened. We've received probably on next month, there are uh, folks trying to move in the community, um, new code ideas around like elevators and um, anticipating the next round of code um, what do we call this every couple of years when they redo the code? The code cycle. <laughs> yeah, the code, code cycle. Thank you. Um, so anticipating some of the, the, the next um, items for the next code cycle. Um, I don't think this is going to be a monthly meeting. I don't expect it to be, um, you know, something where we're coming up with a whole new housing code book or something like that. But do you see this more as some, something to establish guidance as related to the new code cycles and an opportunity to explore those impacts on policy? Uh, both to look at what's, I, I, this is, a, we, I would like to have the intention be open for the creation of new ideas based on what's actually happening in the ho housing division, as well as to explore um, suggestions that are coming from other places. Okay. Okay, and also, um, Commissioner, if you were done with your comment, Commissioner Newman, Commissioner Summer had a question as well. You can go ahead, Commissioner Summer. Thank you. 
Um, I was curious, um, I know the Code Advisory Committee has a housing, trying to see the actual phrasing, housing code subcommittee. Mm -hmm. Is this group um, do different things or sort of address similar items to that? You know, and I've never joined that meeting, so I don't know exactly what they go over. My understanding of the subcommittees of the Housing Code Committee is that they're not, they're reviewing existing items and then sending them to the BIC for recommendation. Uh, and this would be a BIC committee that is has a different genesis where we're looking at what are the trends in the department, what are the things that folks who are on the ground are seeing, and where might there be gaps in policy or in code? And I don't think the sub, the, I don't think that the CAC subcommittees are quite as comprehensive. Got it. So maybe more proactive instead of just being kind of active. I think that's a great way of explaining it. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Are there any other further commissioner questions? Yes. Uh, not so much a question, but more a clarification. So what I've heard with the proposal of uh, this new subcommittee, it's less to do with uh, code or creating policy about code, but more about enforcement. Because you know, with, with any code, it's code's only as good as if it's enforced. And part of our role and our obligations and duties here as a uh, commission is to oversee housing code enforcement and to me, it seems like this subcommittee would be responsible for uh, examining policy and making rec recommendations to the larger uh, uh, commission here on uh, the policy for housing code enforcement and then also examining the practices of what's actually happening with housing code enforcement and seeing areas we can improve. So uh, unlike, um, if I'm understanding correctly, that's what the vision at the outset of this, uh, this subcommittee would be, is that, is that right? So without crossing the line into personnel matters, yes. <laughs> um, I want to make it, you know, I think that the, uh, whereas, as it relates to the broad interpretation of policy, but we're not direct, I want to be clear, like we're, our job is not to direct staff and we can get clarity from the city attorney's office about, you know, making sure that we're all, everyone who in that is in that, in that committee is clear about um, about that line, but the the policies that affect effective code enforcement um, are part of the policy uh, responsibility of the commission. So I would consider that part of the committee. Um, but I I don't imagine this is a subcommittee that is kind of managing staff. If that makes sense, or like it's not a it's not a managing subcommittee. Commissioner Newman. Yes, so I'm open to this. I'm just wondering if there, if we can have like a defined time frame under which this committee is mm -hmm. together to see, you know, and and then evaluate at the end of that term whether or not it's uh, it's a value add. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know if that that if that's something that we're allowed to do. Um, 
Deputy Attorney. Deputy City Attorney Rob Kaplan, you can define the contours and the scope of the subcommittee. Just a reminder that neither the BIC nor a subcommittee, and the BIC cannot delegate to a subcommittee overseeing staff or management. Yeah. So I, as I understand it, this would be a place to explore, learn ideas, bring up policies <clears throat> as a subcommittee that then would be brought to the BIC to discuss and determine whether or not they want to endorse those potential policies. But again, there's no direct management of, of employees or staff. Um, the BIC runs its supervision through the director and, and through their actions as a whole. Um, the question was whether or not we're allowed to have a sunset clause on the committee. So like say that the, that the committee would run for a set duration after which we would decide whether or not you yes. continue to move. Yes, you can determine okay. now what, what charge you want the committee to have in its duration. Okay. Commissioner Chavez? Yeah, um, I'm really interested in this idea. I think it sounds exciting to have the opportunity to explore more into housing code enforcement. And I am curious as to whether there have been instances in the past where this would have been a particular benefit if in like the last couple years of your time on this commission, um, if you can think of any examples. Um, I can think of a, an example that's happening right now. There is a member of the public who is circulating um, uh, and you will see it on the agenda next, probably next month, um, a, an idea for changing the uh, housing code around elevator, elevator mandates. And there's a lot of stakeholders. There's a lot of potential, you know, folks who are going to be impacted on that. And it's, uh, it's, there's not a sponsor for it yet. And so it would, this, this is a, one of the places where we could have a larger kind of more exploratory conversation um, versus like an entire BIC meeting where we don't really have that kind of bandwidth or, you know, we don't want to have the same agenda item every month, right, um, to discuss something as it's, as it's developing in real time. And so that's an example of something that could come before this committee. That's really helpful, thank you. So uh, Deputy City Attorney Rob Kaplan, I would probably then, uh, especially if that's an example, is maybe cross enforcement from the title. It seems like this is more broad based and not just about retroactively enforcing. This is about potential changes or, or policies you'd want the BIC to explore. So just if that is an area you'd want to go into, I think that's a limiting word. Okay, I think that makes sense. So are there any uh, further questions or discussion on that? So we would need a, um, a motion to establish the subcommittee and with uh, Deputy City Attorney Kapla's guidance of changing the title to housing, um, just the housing code subcommittee, is that correct? I think that's yeah. okay. So is there a motion to um, establish or to create the housing code subcommittee? I move. I, I would like to motion with uh, an amendment that we have a, a set duration of one year um, for the subcommittee. When is the deadline for the next code cycle? <coughs> two years. It's in two years out. We just. Can we do 18 uh, months then? Deputy City Attorney Rob Kaplan, so tech, the, the housing code is not on a cycle. So that is specific to San Francisco, so we do not get a California-based housing code that then we have to change. 
And the San Francisco housing cycle is what? The, San Fr the rest of the code, so the building code, yes. the existing building code, they are on a three-year cycle. The state will adopt and, and make changes to the International Building Code cycle and publish a 2025 building code. Is that right, Director? And then we would adopt it for use the first day of 2026. And so if that's if, – but you're saying how San Francisco Housing Code is not on that cycle. Uh, we, we do not have to re-adopt or repeal and re-adopt our housing code every three years. And we, we can do it at any time? Yes. At any time. Okay. So is that is the motion to esta establish okay. the okay. subcommittee for a year? Some time to, like, see if there's a value add before we add a ongoing okay. committee. Yeah. Okay. I'll second that. Fine. That sounds fair to me. Okay. So there was a motion by Commissioner Newman and a second by Commissioner Chavez to establish the housing code subcommittee and the duration would be for one year. Um, I think we said 18, 18, months. 18 months. 18 months. 18 months. Okay. All right. Is there any public comment on that motion? Any remotely? None. Okay. Good morning. Uh, this is Juan Garcia with the SRO Families United Collaborative. Uh, thank you for today's meeting. I uh, just wanted to say that we support the creation of a housing code subcommittee as a mechanism for increased support for the housing inspection services and all the other inspection divisions at DBI in ensuring code compliance. Uh, we also thank the commission for its commitment to our efforts as community-based code enforcement. Thank you. Any, okay, no, any further speakers? None. Uh, yeah, one further. Uh, so with the, exp the proposed expiration date on this, which is what the 18-month limit would be, uh, if, if that's what the proposal is, uh, I don't see the purpose of that uh, because there's nothing that would prevent this commission, if it isn't effective, if it is a waste of time and resources from addressing it before then, or later, or whenever we determine it's not effective. So I think building in an expiration date just builds in an opportunity in the future for it just to, to lose attention and focus and then uh, just to disappear without getting the attention. Also, if, if there is an expiration date, I'm concerned, I would be concerned that we wouldn't put the amount of attention, resources, and, and effort into it if we're just assuming that in, a, you know, in 18 months this is going to go away, so why even bother with it? I, so, I, oh, sorry. Yeah, so that's... I, I see it as quite the opposite. I think that having a set duration means that we're forced to re-examine in 18 months the work that we've done, and it's going to essentially uh, focus that time to make sure that we are sort of making... Uh, real strides and that w the work is being done. And I think it's important to have those sorts of things and mechanisms so that we are examining what it is that we're doing. And if it's kind of this ongoing thing, then it can kind of, and we don't have set meeting times or any of that. It's just kind of ad hoc whenever, um, and we're not forced to have that reflection. Yeah, uh, I understand that. I, I just, I don't see the distinction if this is worthwhile 
for this subcommittee to be created, mm -hmm. and your position is that there should be an expiration date so we critically examine the efficacy of it, what's the distinction between this subcommittee and any other subcommittee? This is a new subcommittee that we are establishing, and we are we we aren't even clear on exactly what the goals are here, how it will differ from the other work that's being done. So we're this is an exploratory phase, and if you would prefer that it not be an expiration, but instead be uh, that we all agree that in 18 months we have to re-examine this rather than a sunset period that's fine because at that time we can decide to disband the committee as well but i think there needs to be a set checkpoint i would yeah i would uh, if it is just a date certain in the future that the commission will examine the efficacy of the new subcommittee that would be uh, very acceptable to me uh, i'm i would be more reluctant to support a sunset date so if it is just an examination date in the future that makes that's very agreeable. I feel like all of it is sort of semantics because it's at that point we can just say let's keep going, <laughs> right? So uh, it's it's I'm fine either way, but I do want a definitive point at which we're checking in on what we have accomplished via this committee because we can keep going and adding more committees. <laughs> right. Right. I don't know how to put myself on the speaker list, so just unmute yourself. I did. Okay, anyway. <laughs> so we do have a build. One thing you'll notice that is not on the list that we're not civilian today is a client services committee. So we do actually have kind of a, an annual check-in, right? We're not filling that because the, the, the creator of that committee has, is, is no longer on the commission or the majority of the people on the, on the committee were not on this commission anymore. So there is kind of an annual check-in when we're like, are we still doing this? And so one of the comments I was going to make at the end of this was, if we don't have this committee anymore, do people want to fill it? Do we not want to fill it? Do we want to just kind of let it go? So there is this annual check-in where we have that opportunity to say, you know, this, this committee doesn't seem to have a purpose anymore, and it's just when we fill those nominations. So it is actually an annual um, process, right, where we can say, you know, through the vote, we don't fill a, fill a committee, right? Which is what we're doing with the client services right now. That was actually going to be my question as to, I th we were talking about three subcommittees today, but I have a feeling there are more than three subcommittees. Um, is there any point, it sounds like we evaluate them when nominations come up, but is there any point in time where we just evaluate all of the committees? Because maybe... This could be impetus for us just instead evaluating all of the committees that subcommittees we have and whether or not they're still of use. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. It's basically, the, yeah. the, I mean, I guess that, that sounds like a good idea. However, the, the litigation committee and the nominations committee have been a uh, long time established. So that's. A little, a, a little bit different, but mm -hmm. like um, as interim president Alexander Toot mentioned, the client services subcommittee and the proposal of this housing code subcommittee are new. So maybe that's why there's kind of questions around mm -hmm. around it. Do we? Do you know how many subcommittees we have in total? Does anyone these know? Ones? Currently, there's just two. Okay, it's just these two. Mm -hmm. Okay, never mind. I thought there were. 
Yeah, De- Deputy City Attorney uh, Rob Cavill. It gets a little confusing because we also have committees that you appoint, but they're not subcommittees of the BIC. So there's uh, the Code Advisory Committee, the Board of Examiners. Um, you sit as a different board when you do the Abatement Appeals Board, I believe, and, and there's also an Access Appeals Commission. There, so there are other bodies, but these are the, the litigation committee is, I, I believe, referenced in our by rules, but may also be referenced in other parts of the code as being a necessary step. So that is not a committee we could choose to de-staff. Um, there are uh, elective, if we remember back to uh, uh, college or high school, uh, subcommittees. This would be an elective subcommittee that we're electing <laughs> to add to our charge. The other ones are Jim. prereqs, and you have to keep them. <laughs> it's going to go Great on college applications. <laughs> <laughs> it looks good on your college oh. application. Um, all right, so where are folks at where the... Um, but um, what I had based yeah. on the discussion is that there's a, a motion by Commissioner Newman and a second by Commissioner Chavez to establish the Housing um, Code Subcommittee, uh, and we're removing the, the stipulation of the 18 months from the title, but with the understanding that it will be revisited as to whether um, to continue with the subcommittee or not. Okay. Okay. And we had our public comment already, so I will do a roll call vote. Everyone is ready. Um, so, interim president Alexander Toot. Yes. Commissioner Chavez. Yes. Commissioner Newman. Yes. Commissioner Shaddix. Yes. Commissioner Summer. Yes. And Commissioner Williams. Yes. Okay, that motion carries unanimously. Okay, next we have um, item seven, director's report. Oh, fill the vacancies, oh yeah. Now we have to have members. <laughs> okay, uh, yes, so we will, is there any members who would like to uh, volunteer or to be appointed for that uh, committee? Uh, I'd like to nominate myself and serve on that committee, or volunteer rather. I would also like to nominate myself. Uh, so would I. Okay. So we had um, Commissioners Alexander Toot, Ch- uh, Chavez, and Newman. Is that correct? Okay. So uh, the motion would be to um, appoint Commissioners Alexander Toot, Chavez, and Newman to the Housing Code subcommittee um, is a, so someone can make a motion and then a second. So moved. Is there a second? I can second. Okay. And is there any public comment on this motion? Okay, none in person and none remotely. Okay, so we will uh, make a roll call vote. Um, interim President Alexander Toot. Aye. Commissioner Chavez. Yes. Commissioner Newman. Yes. Commissioner Shaddix. Yes. Commissioner Summer. Yes. And Commissioner Williams. Yes. Okay, the motion carries unanimously. And congratulations to everyone. Okay, so now I believe we are to item seven, director's report. 
7A, director's update. Thank you, Interim President Alexander Toot and members of the Building Inspection Commission. Uh, I'm Patrick O'Riordan, the Director of the Department of Building Inspection. Uh, at today's meeting, you'll hear an update from our Compliance Manager, Chris Vergara, on our reforms initiative. We launched the reforms initiative in May of 2021 uh, to tighten the Department's controls and to protect the integrity of our services. I'm proud of the progress we've made and want to thank and applaud Chris for his hard work and diligence as our compliance manager. We've already implemented many of our reforms as well as additional reforms that were recommended by the controller's office when that office performed a public integrity review of our department. Those that we haven't yet finished are well underway. I look forward to Chris's update so you can see how far we have come and uh, the incredible improvements we've made in the past couple of years. Uh, moving on, uh, we recently uh, received the final report relating to the glass failures. Um, and next you'll hear um, a presentation by, uh, uh, by uh, Neville Pereira, our deputy director, uh, on that report. Uh, the report was uh, uh, performed by uh, the engineering firm Wiss, Jenny, and Elsner uh, Associates Incorporated, uh, WJE, to make it easy. Uh, on the and that was based on the failures that happened this uh, past March, uh, where several downtown high-rises uh, had gla uh, glazing failures. Um, and uh, spoiler alert, the report showed that building maintenance issues were the root cause of these failures. Our uh, uh, Neville Pereira, like I said, will walk you through the findings of the report and its recommendations for changes to our facade inspection program to help prevent these failures from happening in the future. Uh, thank you, Neville, uh, for your work on this important issue. And um, lastly, I want to highlight uh, a few uh, outreach and staff events coming up in the next month. Uh, next week, we will host uh, our quarterly public advisory forum for our customers. This is an opportunity for our customers to learn about the improvements we've been making uh, to the permitting process and to give us feedback uh, on how to make things better. It will be uh, Wednesday the 27th next week uh, from 3.30 to uh, 5 p.m. Uh, Janie Chan, who is our technical services uh, division manager, will speak at the San Francisco Association of Realtors uh, event next week to provide information on ADUs. Uh, she'll participate in the event uh, on Thursday, September 28th uh, in Japantown. Finally, we're hosting our annual all-hands meeting on Wednesday, October 4th from 8 to 9.15 a.m. Uh, at the meeting, we'll reflect on progress we made in the past year and lay out, uh, lay out our goals for the upcoming year. Uh, and we do invite you all to join us. Uh, that concludes my report. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Um, next, we have 7B update on major projects. Okay. 
It's, um, can we get the, uh, the major projects report SFGov to show on the screen? There we go. Okay. Um, thank you again, commissioners. Uh, the following slides are intended to highlight the volume, val valuation of projects, and valuation of projects costing five million or more that have been filed, issued, and completed in the past month. We'll pro profile a few projects that bring especially high value in terms of their contribution to housing and community assets. Uh, in this slide, uh, in August 2023, one permit application with an estimated valuation of five million or more was filed with DBI. It was for a major renovation of a three-story addition to uh, an existing retail building at 2 Stockton Street, and that uh, work was valued at $60 million. And slide three, uh, last month we issued four high-value permits with a total valuation of $65.6 .6 million. One permit was for the renovation of an office building at 550 Terrier Francois, uh, and is it is valued at 30 million. Another is for a site permit improvement, uh, a site improvement, I should say, uh, at Japantown's Peace Plaza, which is located at 1610 Geary Boulevard. Uh, the valuation of that project is 18.8 .8 million. And uh, lastly, DBI finaled or completed the final sign-off on three high-value permits. One was for 1570 Pacific Avenue, uh, which is a new 53-unit mixed-use building with nine affordable units. The valuation of that project was $18 million. Another was for a new 27-unit mixed-use building with four affordable units. That building is located at 188 Octavia Street, and the valuation of that project uh, is $9 million. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Did commissioners have any questions on that? Okay. Then next we have um, item 7C, update on DBI's finances. Good morning, Commissioners. Alex Koskinen, Deputy Director of Administration. This month I have a more comprehensive update for you, not only the regular financial update, but a look back at the previous fiscal year, which is now largely closed. Uh, some history, a brief update on the fee study, and some other items for discussion. Next slide, please. So I'll start off first with a financial overview of the department, the financial schedules, and some of the history. So the department and the city is on a, an annual fiscal calendar that goes from July 1st to June 30th. The city issues a comprehensive annual financial report that's published November through early the following year, depending on how complicated the particular year is. The annual budget calendar, the city does budget for the next two years, but the, the city does the, the budget every year. However, it establishes a budget for the following two years. So the second year of the budget, 
in the next year becomes the primary year. Each year is evaluated twice. Um, December through February is the department phase of the budget. That's when the, the, the budget system opens to departments. Departments can go in and submit their, their proposed changes to the budget and um, for, for the next two years. Then when the department submits in February, February through June, the departments are kicked out of the budget system and that's the mayor's phase of the budget. So the mayor's budget office uh, works with departments um, but puts in the, the mayor's policy objectives and then on June 1st, the mayor issues her proposed budget for the next two years. Then in uh, June and July, it's the Board of Supervisors phase of the budget where the supervisors review what has been submitted by the mayor and the departments. They make their, their cuts and ads and um, then that, that's a specific board committee. They refer it to the full board, the full board votes on it and then the mayor signs it. Uh, and the mayor signs around August 1st, used typically. Next slide, please. This is, a, this is what to expect from the monthly meetings roughly throughout the year. There's always going to be unique items to discuss month to month, but this is the general schedule, um, the, the key recurring dates annually. So most meetings, every meeting there will be a regular financial update how the previous month went, but in September, which is now, you'll get a look back of the previous previous fiscal year as the budget has closed. And um, then in January, a key date, that's really when we have enough information to make projections for the end of the fiscal year. Right now, there's so much uncertainty. What revenues will we get? Do we need to spend our entire budget? It's too soon to uh, project what we will, how, how this fiscal year will end up just two months in. Uh, February then we will meet to discuss the department's proposed budget and depending on the timing the budget has a city charter specified date that it must be submitted by and depending on how that falls when the the February Commission meeting is um, there will likely need to be a special meeting to discuss and approve the proposed budget. Then in April is the next projection milestone. That's when, at six and nine months, the DBI will meet with the mayor's office and the controller's office to go over year-end projections to make sure everything's on track. So those are significant efforts to determine how the current year is, is looking and where we think we'll end up at the end of the year, especially for DBI given the revenue uncertainty. Next slide. Now I'll get into some of the history, um, how D, what DBI's current financial position is and how it got there. So I'll go back to 2011, uh, after the last financial crisis in 2008, the city really saw revenue began to rise sharply in about 2010, 2011, um, and it, it stayed high. It, it, every year beat expectations, revenue did. 
um, and far exceeded expenditures all, all the way up through the pandemic. Uh, in 2020, there was a very sharp reversal due to the pandemic and then the subsequent changes to the city due to work from home and the safety of the streets and a host of other factors. The demand for permits just immediately went way down, fell by about a third, uh, which is about 30 million, almost $30 million. So our current financial position, we have $77 million in cash and that is the amount that we have in our bank account today, approximately. Uh, but much of that is committed. So we've already entered into contracts for services. We already um, have uh, ongoing multi-year projects, money that we haven't spent yet, but that we have committed. So the, important, the more important amount to look at is our um, available fund balance and that amount is, sits at about $29 million. There's a bit of a timing issue, uh, mixing cash and accrual accounting, but we have $77 million of cash today. This $29 million of fund balance, that assumes that this fiscal year will um, end on budget. We've already assumed a large use of our fund balance, of our, our cash to balance this year's budget. We have more expenditures and revenue coming in, so we've already planned to use uh, $23 million of fund balance this year. So I've taken that out of the available fund balance. We have that $29 million is for fiscal year 25 and beyond. And our current operating deficit sits at about $23 million. So we're spending this fiscal year we're budgeted to spend $23 million more than um, we'll take in in revenue. So last year's budget was really an attempt to stop the bleeding. We increased fees by 15%, but um, demand had still been falling. So even, with, even when we reduced expenditure and increased revenue, we're still seeing this sizable deficit. And absent additional intervention, uh, fund balance is projected to exhaust in fiscal year 26. Next slide, please. Here's a, a chart of revenues, expenditures, and available fund balance. Fiscal year 23, up to that point, we, those numbers are actuals, and then 24 to 28 are projections. Um, when the red revenue line is above the gray expenditure line, then fund balance increases. And as you can see in 2020, those lines flipped positions and now the gray expenditure line is well above the red expenditure line. And I included our very tentative plans in here to um, correct that imbalance. Uh, it's, you can see from 21 to 24, we have raised, or we have decreased expenditures some, and we've stabilized revenue. And with the upcoming fee study, we plan to, again, raise revenue and close that gap, mostly by 
increasing revenue because we have cut most expenditure that we can without affecting labor, without affecting staffing. So it's our hope to um, become neutral by 2026-27, or by, by 2027. So next slide, please. So that, that was some of the history. Now I'll get into the prior fiscal year, fiscal year 2023, which has um, closed. So we ended up um, $3.3 million short of our budgeted revenue. However, we also spent 3.4 less than we had budgeted. So we're about even there, no, no real effect on fund balance greater than the 27 million that we had anticipated. So that was largely good news. And at the end of this year, we have, or at the end of fiscal year 23, we had 45.3, but again, we had to use uh, 20, 23 million to balance the 24 budget. So that's why uh, I showed that $29 million really available for the future. And we've also carried forward $6.6 .6 million of expenditure appropriation. These are for commitments we have made, but money we have not spent in fiscal year 23. So if there are outstanding invoices, if there are bills that we have not received for services which we have received, we need to carry forward that appropriation. So about a million dollars in work orders, $5 million in um, non-personnel services, 300,000 for the CBO grants, and about 100,000 for materials and supplies. Next slide. So here are the numbers for fiscal year 23, uh, ending numbers. You can see everything that I discussed on the previous slide as far as revenue, um, $3 million short in, in revenue. Uh, you can see the, the various sources. And also, so, we can see the budget, the actuals, the percentage of budget that we actually recovered, the surplus, and then the last two slides are what we had projected at nine months. So we actually were projecting a $5 million deficit and we ended a little bit better than expected. So I think the last few months of the fiscal year, revenues improved a bit, which was great news. We hope we'll continue, it's a little bit soon to um, really call that a turnaround, but we're continuing to monitor. Next slide, please. On the expenditure side, same thing. Um, we have budget, actuals, percentage of budget spent, uh, the, the net of the, the net, and then the projections from nine month. So we're, our projections for expenditures are usually better than for revenue. We can control what we spend and we know what's coming up. So we were much closer here. We projected $3.2 million in savings and we realized 3.4. Next slide, please. A very brief update on the fee study. I suspect that, well, if there is desire to get into this more deeply, then I, I am available to answer questions. But a brief update for now. 
the fee study is underway. We expect to complete it in November and have a final report. And a, a little bit about what the fee study is, what it's doing, it's finding out the maximum fee amount, or it's finding out how much we need to charge to recover what we're spending. And the maximum fee amount for each service that we provide is the cost to provide that service. So that's per state law. Anything greater than that, if we're making a profit, then that's considered a tax, not a fee. And that would have to be approved by voters. So the maximum we're allowed to charge for anything we do is the cost to provide that service. Determining the cost for each service is fairly complex. It involves allocating all of the overhead. It's not just the salary of an inspector doing an inspection, but it's a share of all the overhead and the indirect costs that go along with that. Um, and the, basically, simply, what we're doing to determine the cost of each service is determining how long does it take staff, is, is establishing an hourly rate for staff a fully loaded hourly rate with their salary and with all the overhead, how much does it cost per hour? And then how many hours does it take them to do to provide a service? And so those two multiplied together equal the maximum allowed cost. So the hourly staff costs have been determined. We did a productivity analysis. We have our um, uh, approved budget as the, to, to show the amount of cost we have in total, we allocate all the overhead. That, that stage has been complete. We have hourly rates for staff. And the time study, how long does it take staff to provide each service that we charge for, that is mostly complete. We've provided our preliminary results to the fee study consultant who is conducting the study. and. Uh, we're on schedule and expected to complete soon. I think we'll have drafts soon, and then we will discuss with the commission, with the mayor's office, to determine what the results are and if those results are feasible. If one particular fee, if the true cost recovery of that is 800% more than we're charging now, we're probably not going to increase fees 800%, so then how do we pay for what the department is doing? Uh, in, in short, we don't plan to raise fees all the way up to the full cost recovery amounts, the maximum amount that we could right away. We'll phase that in with the using the remaining 29, hopefully not all of it, million that we have to kind of soften that, that increase to prevent as much rate shock as possible. So we will supplement the lower amount of revenue that we expect to receive with our remaining fund balance. And then hopefully when thing, things turn around, we can then start rebuilding that fund balance during better times. Okay, and the last thing to mention here is the fee study, it, it's, well and good to come up with, with cost recovery fees. This is how much it costs. But an important thing to consider, which is not necessarily a part of the fee study but related, is the demand for DBI services. 
projecting how many permits we think we're going to issue next year is very, very difficult. No one has a crystal ball. We don't know what to expect. We're basing what we think will happen next year based on this current year and reducing the number of permits a little bit to be conservative, but it's something that we closely monitor every month to make sure that there's not a huge spike in demand or a huge crash. So um, if, if there are significant changes to demand, then we will have to manage it during the year. Next slide, please. All right, so now this last portion is the regular monthly update. We are about 17% of the way through the year, and we've only collected 15% of our budgeted revenue, so slightly below. However, the 15% fee increase that was approved for this fiscal year didn't go into effect until August 28th, so only three days of the fee increase were captured so far. So we hope to make up that gap uh, now that the 15% fee increase is in effect. And again, it's too early to project, and we will monitor and develop and provide um, projections at six months, so in January. Next slide, please. Here's a look at the monthly revenues. You can see we're 15 collected on our charge for services, which is the majority of the revenue. The, the two main revenue sources are the charge for services and the licenses, permits, franchise. So that's the apartment license fee, the hotel license fee that we charge. Uh, next slide, please. And here's the expenditure. Hopefully, I've, we're presenting it a bit differently. Hopefully, this is easier to understand. We're 17% of the way through the year based on time, but only 3.5 of the 27 pay periods in the year have posted, so that's only 13%. So that's why when you see salaries and, and benefits are 13% spent, we're not saving any money there. It's just a, a timing issue there. So we're spending all of our labor uh, budget. We are um, using all of the labor funding that we were provided in the approved budget. Next slide, please. Oh, sorry, previous slide, please. Um, one thing to note here, it may look strange if you look at the 2024 actuals for the city grant program and see negative 360,000. This is a year-end artifact. This report was completed before things were completely closed. This was an accrual. Um, we had 300,000 unbilled from the grant, um, from the uh, grantees. We were expecting invoices from them, so we accrued the expenditure. We, we recognized it in fiscal year 23, even though we hadn't gotten the invoice yet. And so we have a, a negative expenditure in 24. When we get the invoices, then the positive invoice expenditure amount will cancel out that negative. All right, next slide. For our permits, we're in an interesting place now where the number of permits year to date, so July and August, compared to last year's July and August, we're 
14% higher the number of permits this year. However, the valuation is 23% lower. So we're getting a lot more small projects, but fewer large projects. Uh, next slide. It's still difficult to draw too many conclusions because as you can see, two projects here valued at 140 million really skew this. So can we count on another two $70 million projects coming in? I don't, it's, it's hard to say, who knows? And the further along through the year we go, the more certain, the, the easier to draw conclusions will be. Next slide, please. So that is the end of the report. I'd be happy to answer questions uh, about any issues. I know, Commissioner Williams, you had questions about the budget process and the CBO funding and how that worked and how that could work. I'd be happy to answer any, any questions about that. Yeah, so the process for the funding. I mean, I'm wondering if it's premature to address it because the fee study is going to be available in November. Is that is that right? So um, I guess with your, um, with your presentation, a question that, I, I mean, the, the question on my, uh, on my brain right now is the idea of, uh, I think you mentioned once or twice, in the future, like with the projections in the future, we're expecting revenues to increase, and um, how? Uh, what's the basis for that expectation? Uh, that I mean, that's. I'm just asking that question because it's the one on my my mind right now. So, um, and then we can come back to the other things. But sure. Well, we know we have uh, this large operating deficit, and so the fee study says how much. How much do you need to charge to eliminate that, to recover all $80 million that you're spending? Um, so we have rough preliminary amounts, and we know that those would be big increases. Um, so our plan is to propose a third of that increase, roughly, each year for three years. Um, so if we do that, then we know if we increase revenue by 15, 20% again, then rev assuming that the demand for our permits and our services stays the same, that revenue would be greater. So that's what that is based on. Okay. Um, I'll ask another question. Um, so with our analysis, um, I think you've uh, astutely pointed out that it's hard to, we don't have a crystal ball and it's hard to project what's gonna happen uh, but with the data, is there any way to examine comparable cities to see what, what's happening there with their uh, revenue, their, their permitting practices, what, what's happening with their development? And um, is, that, is, that is that part of the analysis? Can we, can we do something as the commission to examine that data or, or to obtain it? And, uh, part of the fee study is... Um an analysis of other jurisdictions, but it's very difficult. It may not be apples to apples. Other jurisdictions' fee schedules and fee structures are, are different. They charge for different things. Um, they're, the way that they're set up is different, and many of them also have, I think, the majority of them, I don't know all of them, but from what I've 
from what I understand, the majority are general fund supported. So some things like code enforcement might be completely out of fees. We are building in the cost of code enforcement into like the cost of housing inspections mm -hmm. into um, our, our fees study. Other jurisdictions might not. So their fees may appear lower, but they're paying, those fees are paying for less things or different things. Um, so we're hoping, we're hoping to have an analysis. We've been meeting with the consultant and we've told them the priority is to complete the fee study itself. The analysis is an item in the contract that they um, are supposed to be providing. We'll see that might be done after the fee study report itself. We're not sure at this point yet. Alex, thank you so much. These presentations are always great. Um, fast question, just to clarify, uh, page eight versus page 12, and no need to bring it all up. Um, the city grant program on page eight, it shows a deficit of uh, 1.8 million. And then we go to page 12, the city grant program shows a deficit of 359. I just not understanding how the, the paperwork is working here. You explained it really well with the 359 was unbilled services. So going back to the 1.4, was that also on Sure. So this is, page eight is looking back at fiscal year 22-23. Mm -hmm. And then page 12 is looking at fiscal year 23-24. So um, you can see the amount of 454, 712. Those are the actuals for 23. Those are the same on both pages, but the budgets for the two years are, are different. So uh, where are they? Um, oh, so the, but yes, yeah, so the, the budget for the two years are different. So the budget for fiscal year 23, and really the budget here is, there's some explaining to do. Why is it 6.3? Really the budget should have been about $5 million, but unbilled from fiscal year 22, unbilled invoices, when there's an open purchase order, it automatically carries forward to the next year. Budget automatically carries forward with it. So um, they, the reason the budget is so high there is because they didn't bill all of what they could have in the previous year. And that each year they can only spend their contracted amount, which is about $5 million. But if they have unspent, then the budget authority carries forward to the next year. Um, we haven't closed it. We've kind of kept that extra budget to help balance other things if there's overspending in labor or something else. But um, yeah, the the budget for fiscal year 24, the approved budget was $4.8 million. So that is the amount that they can actually spend in fiscal year 24. But in fiscal year 23, there was 360,000 of unbilled, uninvoiced um, appropriation budget that was automatically carried forward to fiscal year 24. So if and when they invoice us for that, then we need that extra 300,000 in this year's budget to pay for last year's invoice. Ideally, they would bill us on time and all, all the expenditures would live in the appropriate fiscal year, but 
that's late late billing happens and we we still have to pay even if they bill us late okay so ho hopefully that makes sense and isn't too confusing yeah thank you Um, I have a couple questions. One, I, I was curious about the CBO funding that you brought up. Do you know about the timing when we'll know? From what I understand, the last the last round of that budget or that funding came from the city and not TBI? Correct. So the fee study, one thing to point out is that that CBO funding, the $4.8 is not part of the fee study because that has its own funding source, which is a transfer from the general fund. We don't need currently this year to increase fees to pay for it because we have a funding source. So all, all of the work we do that we receive revenue for, so uh, peer review, when projects are required to do peer review analysis, we spend the money because we want to control which engineering firms do that peer review and people can't just use their friends, but the project pays us back. So costs like that or services that we're doing for other city departments that they pay us for, those expenditures are not part of the fee study because we don't need to recover to, through fees to pay for them. So yes, the, the CBO grant funding, the $4.8 million budgeted for fiscal year 24 is um, funded by the general fund and that appears to be an ongoing it was entered into the budget system as an ongoing expense. Um, and then, regard, I know the fee study hasn't, is still in progress, but I am curious about um, how, I have two questions about it. One, uh, in our meeting in July, I believe, we waived a series, we waived some fees, permitting fees. How are these, how's a fee study gonna interact with the fees that we've waived? Hopefully, it's just in the noise. The amount that we're waiving are tens of thousands, even if it gets up to around 100,000. Um, 100,000 of a $80 million or $50 million budget is hopefully low enough to where we'll just absorb those costs. In a perfect world, they would be unfunded and we would have a slight negative fund balance, but it's, it's really the setting of fees is an imperfect science, so the hope is that we can just absorb those. And then I'm also curious, you said that they're doing an evaluation of like how much fees should be increased to meet that, um, the cost of the permit. Um, do you know what, who might be the most impacted or like where we have the largest discrepancy between what the actual fee is? Yeah. Yes. And I know the mayor's office is also very concerned about that. The area that we undercharge by the most is inspections by far. Mm. Um, for permit fee and issuance fee for, the permit fee is for the plan check, issuance fee is for the inspection cost. Inspector time is, costs more than plan checker time because inspectors have less product, they have less hours in the day, they have more overhead work, they have to, one hour in the morning, one hour um, at the end of the day is spent in the office scheduling, answering emails, answering phone calls, 
They handle complaints, which we don't get paid for. They work at the counter. So they have less time to do inspections, and therefore, um, even if they made the same salary as plan checkers on average, their, their hourly rate is higher because they have less time to do the work in. And plan check fees right now are higher than issuance fees. Mm -hmm. I don't know the history of that, but that will mean that for the plan check fees will go up slightly and issuance fees would need to go up more. Or if somebody just scheduled a plumbing electrical inspection by itself, those would need to go up more to fully recover costs. So, um, however, we, we will attempt to smooth that out some by, we plan to, again, not raise fees to the full amount that we could. Um, however, if there are some increases where the full increase, we're, we're charging almost the full recovery amount, um, we will charge the full amount there, but then target a discount at some of those fees with larger increases. So use some fund balance to uh, for, for an individual fee so that that fee doesn't need to be raised as high as it would need to be to fully recover costs. But again, to, to resummarize, plan check fees are going up a little bit and inspection fees would need to go up much more. Well, I look forward to the report. Thank you. Um, Commissioner Newman is going to speak after that. Um, Commissioner Summer has a comment. She can go ahead. Oh, you can, oh, you can go. It's okay. If since she couldn't get oh. the list. All right, uh, Commissioner Summer, uh, you can go ahead. Thanks. Hello. Thanks for the presentation. Always very helpful, and I appreciate the history, especially with new commissioners. Um, I had a question, I think it's a question, a clarification, that I know has come up multiple times when we've had public discussion or, or public input regarding the budget. The fund balance, and I don't think you mentioned this in the presentation, the amount that we are allowed to put in our fund balance, basically like the amount that we are allowed to have in a savings account, is capped or limited. Is that correct? I know that people always say, you know, we were making so much money back then. Why didn't we save more so that we could have more for our rainy day fund type of type of question? But my understanding is that there is an actual legal limit on that or something. Is that true? I'll defer to our deputy CD attorney, but I don't think that there is a specific amount. It's just a general reasonableness analysis. Gotcha. If okay. we had $500 million and somebody were to sue us, say, hey, you've been taxing ratepayers. why do you have so much money? We'd probably lose. Uh, but where is that line? Where is that threshold? All we really have is past practice, what the reserve, what the maximum reserve amounts have been, maximum fund balance has been in the past. Um, we it's not so much an issue now that our fund balance is low and projected to go down, but when we are at a point where we can rebuild our fund balance, then we'll definitely be meeting closely with the controller's office, the mayor's office, and discuss with the commission what appropriate 
maximum fund balance amounts are, how quickly we want to re rebuild those reserves in good time, how much we want to charge in addition to the amount needed to recover, not just recover our fees, but um, contribute to future fund balance. So those discussions have yet to be had. Got it, thank you. On the historical context there, there was a point where we did start to reduce our fees correct because our fund balance was at a certain level, right? Yes, so even, even with the reductions, revenue still continued to outpace expenditure and fund balance continued to grow. And at that time, we added some additional programs to our budget, correct? Yes, so there was uh, a lot of money flowing out of the department, money flowing to the fire department to pay for things that were related to DBI business, flowing to the assessor, the city administrator. We've since clawed all that back and stopped those ongoing expenses. But yes, one-time spending and other, other related spending is, is another way to draw down fund balance. Okay, um, and then just a very direct question on the CBOs. Are we allowed to collect fees to cover those costs? I'll, I'll defer to our deputy city attorney. Is it still a gray area? <laughs> deputy city attorney Rob Kevin, can you repeat the question? Are we allowed to consider in our fees covering the cost of operating the CBOs? And the CBOs being? The SRO collaboratives and the services that they provide for code enforcement. We, uh, we've had those discussions in the past as to which fees they may be recovered from, uh, mm -hmm. pr uh, permits that may be associated with the types of properties that would, that would have enforcement issues that would res re um, um, result from, from grant projects. So, but it it is it, it is a tricky question as to whether or not a um, a bathroom remodel could have a surcharge that would be used for unrelated uh, services. Is there a way for us to sort of uncloudy this so that there's uh, an answer here? I know that it's for the next fiscal year; it's a non-issue, and but. I feel like this is an ongoing question that's being posed and it had been run through our budget. We made a decision because at the end of the day, we have to balance uh, the budget for essential services, right? Um, and I was under the impression that we, we couldn't, um, it, it, we couldn't increase fees or there weren't fees associated with that. So um, is there a way for us to figure that out? <laughs> Uh, Deputy City Attorney Rob, I don't want to mistake. I think you have a better understanding, our expert. Um, but the the question was the the universe of fees that could possibly be increased was such a small universe of projects. There was no way to make up the. There was no way to make up the difference. Okay. Um, I, I think part of it was the apartment license fee, the hotel license fee. I, at this point. I, I suspect that those are the fees that would potentially oh, okay. fund it. Okay. And the fee increase there would have to be very, very significant to add another $5 million, to recover another $5 million. I don't think we ever got to the point where we definitively answered, is it legal, is it appropriate to do this? Um, 
because the issue, as you said, kind of went away for this year. Um, but yes, we will, we will pose that question to the consultant and also get an opinion from our city attorneys. Yeah, it would be nice to see like what those increases would need to be and, the, and understand the legality of it. I, I think roughly it was about an additional 70%. Okay, that's, that's a bit hard to swallow, yeah, okay. Um, and then just a couple of other questions on the projections. Um, so there was a, a spike in like June and July um, of 15% due or uh, spike in permits pulled. Do you see that as being associated with um, people trying to get ahead of the fee increase of 15% or um, can we maybe track that? Make a note to track to see if I mean we will never know. Yeah, that <laughs> I think it's very difficult to say. I would say for the large projects, probably no. Their time yeah. lines are pretty well set, and ten thousand dollars. What is ten thousand mm -hmm. dollars to a high-rise building project for a yeah. hundred million dollars? Um, so I I suspect no, and then probably for homeowners and small businesses, are they even aware of it? Their contractors probably are, but are their contractors telling the homeowner, you need to get this done right now before your fee goes up 15%? Maybe, I don't know. Okay. Um, I think that those are all the questions I had for now. I'd like to put myself on the list, if that's okay. Yeah, you can go ahead and um, speak interim president and after you then commissioner williams okay thank you um so first my disclosure i used to work at the sro collaboratives years ago and i still maintain friendships with some people who receive services and work there um so i have a number of questions about the fiscal year and i'd like to continue the conversation also around um the particular the, the fee study question but You've outlined your pro like the, the commission's process, but what is your internal timeline for figuring out the budget? Is it, does it mirror that or does it start it already? Kind of what is, what is your internal, internal timeline in the city's timeline? November, start telling people it's, it's almost budget time. Let's start thinking about what you want, what enhancements you, you will request and put together a proposal I tell people it's a very difficult financial time. Please, to the degree possible, save what you can. But we want to know what your wish list items are so we can take them all and put them in a list, prioritize them, and see what we can, can and can't fund. So um, around December, I asked, what new positions do you want? What new initiatives do you want? And so asking internal staff what their requests and wish lists are. Um, and then around January, we start to learn about some of the other city costs that we can affect. So we'll learn what our, what our rent costs or our light, heat, and power costs will be for next year. So balancing those and just kind of every day, every few days, looking at our balance, how much extra are we adding? How much extra revenue do we yeah. have? How much extra do we need? And just um, okay. it, continue, continuous iteration. Great. And then what is the timeline for, for the fee study to, be, to um, affect the budget? 
So when does the approval have to happen so that we can use the information from the fee study to, pro to project next year's budget? Like, what's a, what's a timeline? Like, when are we too late? Probably January um, in order to get everything loaded into the budget system and balanced, we need to know what revenues roughly are in January. In January. And can you do it just based on the fee study alone, or does it have to have been approved by the Board of Supervisors for us to make those presumptions in the budget? No, this is, I mean, technically, what goes into the department's budget submission is whatever the department wants. In practice, in reality, we work closely with the mayor's office and we say, hey, we're thinking of doing this thing. What do you think about it? Um, if we just say we want to spend, we want to double our budget and we submit that, then they'll just be upset with us. They'll take it out in their mayor phase anyway, and they'll be less likely to share what they're doing during their phase. So it's important to keep the mayor's office primarily in the, in the loop with what we're thinking about doing for okay. our, our proposal. Understood. But if we're, if, we're, if we're looking at a fee study or at a February date, that we might miss the boat in terms of being able to put the fee study presumptions into our own budget. Is that correct? I mean, like if we don't put anything, if we assume zero revenue increase, something will happen in mayor phase. I mean, there will be some revenue increase. There, there must be. We yeah. have a large operating deficit. Everyone recognizes that. So okay. we will have something for uh, department phase. And depending on whether it's done, then it might stay there, stay that way through mayor phase mm -hmm. or if there's still policy decisions being made, oh, this fee is too high, let's lower this one a little bit, stuff like that, that could continue into the mayor phase. Okay, thank you. Um, how do new programs get built in um, with the fee study? So the window, the new window program that we're gonna discuss today, new inspection programs, new requirements, how do those get built into the fee study? Well, it depends if there's new costs associated with them. So in practice, in reality, what happens is just existing staff has to do that work and find a way to make it work. Um, if there was money granted through legislation, then we would factor that in, but that's rarely the case. Uh, if new staff, if, if new program needed new staff, we'd have to propose that in the budget. So. The inputs for the cost study are uh -huh. our existing approved budget expenditure. So if a new program were to be legislated right now, then we would just have to do that work with within our existing budget. Or that or the legislation could contemplate a new fee? Yes. It, it could and, and I appreciate any effort or or attention that could be brought to costs associated with all new legislation. Um, or awning, awning waivers, all that stuff, it would be fantastic if we could say, okay, like first year free, the general fund will, will give DBI money to cover those waived fees. So that's also true for the CBO program, right? The Board of Supervisors could pass the CBO program as a mandate to the department and include a fee that's associated. Um, so yeah, any, any change to the building code could be proposed legislation at any time it's likely to be included with the budget is budget trailing legislation but theoretically just any fee the authority to charge a fee would be a change to the building code yeah and that's the authority lies at the board of supervisors i mean we were a recommending body but it's not within our authority to sure. change i mean and the mayor the mayor of course, approves yeah. it although can be 
overridden. This full legislative process, correct. <laughs> um, okay, that's helpful, sitting thinking. Um, so the CAC recently recommended that we revisit fees every year. Does that mean we need a consultant every year? How do we operationalize consideration of fees on an annual basis? So my plan, I've, I've developed a fee model that I'm working with the consultant. Either they will take our inputs and put them in their fee model or they will say what you've created is, is correct and uh, we will support it. Um, my plan is use that model or something like it and add language to the building code that says the fees can be adjusted on an annual basis. I would like as much flexibility as possible there. So mm -hmm. fees may be adjusted to an amount that allows the department to recover its costs mm -hmm. rather than the department can raise its fee 2% each year because DBI costs are so volatile, as you can see in that, in that chart, the graph, when the pandemic hit and revenue drops 30%, a CPI increase of 2% a year is, is not really gonna help. So I think we need to uh, do an annual an analysis, do an annual adjustment. Of course, we'd propose it to the BIC, to the board, to the mayor's office, and they would give a thumbs up or thumbs down, but whatever we can do to minimize, if we can set it up so that we don't need a consultant every year and we don't need new legislation every year, we just need some sort of approval, like written approval that's easier than formal board building code change, then that would be ideal. I see, so the idea would be that it would become an administrative process to raise fees if that's possible. Um, I would like to request that for when we receive the fee study that we receive the consultant study, not just the PowerPoint. Um, I think the commission would like to read the study when the analysis is available to read the full analysis. Um, so thank you in advance for that. Um, and... With building off of Commissioner Newman's questions about what is the universe of fees that, you know, and what is the association and kind of like what, what, this, what that coverage would look like. Um, so you're, that will be in, we can expect that from the analysis from the consultant. So for the CBO, no, only, only fee supported expenditures are part of the fee study. And we've told the consultant, and it's in our budget, the, the CBO expenditures have their own funding source. They are, those expenditures are not recovered through, through fees. So could they, adding them in is fairly trivial if we wanted to, but they are currently not part of it. Only expenditures that are paid for by fees are in the fee study would like to see those in. I think that's what it was a request from the commission was to see, to see what those would be um, so that we can understand both the impact and the legality of that as an option. Okay. That's what I, I heard the request as. Is that my understanding? 
of your request? Yes, I, I just want to understand what fees we can legally use and then w how we would have to adjust those fees. Mm -hmm. So th I think that's the question there. And we, we have, it seems like we have some understanding. There's these apartment rental fees, perhaps, but it's not guaranteed. And the, you have some idea of what the increase would need to be, but I would like to see it in a formal way. So I just want to reiterate Commissioner Newman's request and agree with that. Um, I do not have um, any, well, okay, I guess my last question was just something you had mentioned and I wanted to uh, be clear what it meant. You said, uh, if there are changes to demand, we will manage it during the year. Can you tell me what that meant? Really just cutting expenditures. I see, okay. So that's what that would be. Or, um, I mean, we could keep spending um, if it was, if, if permit volume suddenly dropped by 50% and we were short another $30 million and we were going to run out by the end of the, run out of fund balance by the end of the year, we would talk to the mayor's office and say, do you want to furlough or lay off or do you want to have the general fund provide support? I suspect the city is not in such a dire financial position where they would allow labor to be affected at this point, but uh, the financial picture isn't that great for the city overall. So it's those types of things like mm -hmm. stop, stop all uh, discretionary spending, cut contract. I mean, we have so our our, our spending is so heavily um, labor that we could not pay our, we could get rid of the copiers and stop paying Canon and save a few hundred thousand dollars there. But we're at the point where any additional non-labor cuts would affect daily operations. Thank you. Um, that's the conclusion of my questions. Um, Commissioner Williams. Very helpful. So, um, just a few uh, clarifying questions, and it's about sort of recent history, especially in light with the uh, the requirement that the fees charged be proportional to cost. If that's my understanding, uh, well, and this may be a legislative question or maybe a, a legal question as well. And we're, we're talking about the legality of the fees. This year there was an ordinance passed raising fees across the board by 15%. So was there an analysis done as to the proportionality of the 15% across, has there been a challenge to that? Because that doesn't, I mean, that's just a general across the board. No, so there was no, the justification for that was just that we are, uh, the 15% is a small amount of our deficit. And um, so, in on the whole, we are not, the 15% will not lead to over-recovery for the department. Um, further, the last time that fees were uh, changed was in 2015. Uh, so the CPI increase alone is over 30% since then. So it is, that that was the justification, that was the, the reasonableness for adjusting those fees by only 15% when really 
recovery amount would have been an average increase of about 45%. So it's possible that one individual fee was bumped up too high, but on the whole, fees were too low. And um, I think so far from what I'm seeing in the preliminary fee study data, there will be maybe three or four fees department-wide that will go down, and they'll go down by like one, two percent, maybe some of the permitting fees, but then some of the issuance ones would need to go up by 100% or more. Sorry, just to add clarification, that 2015 adjustment was a downward adjustment of 7.5%. Correct. Thank you. Are there any further questions? Everyone okay? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay, next we have item 7D, update on proposed or recently enacted state or local legislation. Good morning, Interim President Alexander Two Commissioners, I'm Carl Nasida, DBI's Legislative Affairs Manager with a monthly update on proposed or enacted state and local legislation impacting DBI. So we could go to slide two once it's ready. The first three items I'll cover today are ordinances that all became effective at the end of August. The first is an ordinance amending the planning and building codes to create a temporary amnesty program for a streamlined application process and permit fee waivers. Thanks to our colleagues at the Office of Small Business for their outreach to businesses that received complaints or notices of violation beginning in November of last year. Next is an ordinance outlining the site permit application process requiring simultaneous interdepartmental review. And finally, an ordinance increasing all DBI fees by 15%, as Deputy Director Koskinen just mentioned. Big thanks to our DBI staff who worked hard to update the fees in our system and our customer, customer communications as well so that we were ready to launch when the ordinance became effective on August 28th. We're actually ready before then, so that was good news. Next slide, please. Moving on to recently passed legislation, the ordinance amending the planning and building code to change how the city sets, imposes, and collects various development impact fees. Uh, my slide's a little outdated since I submitted these on Friday before the mayor signed this legislation, um, but it has since been acted by the mayor and will go into effect on October 16th. Next slide. The ordinance adding a business sign fee waiver to the existing May Small Business Awning Fee Waiver Program in recognition of May as Small Business Month in San Francisco was passed by the Board of Supervisors and signed by the mayor last week on September 15th, so it'll become effective 30 days after that. Plenty of time before next May, and there are retroactive fee waivers available for any small businesses that applied for an awning permit or sign permit in May of 2023. Next slide. So these next two ordinances were introduced but are on hold currently pending further discussion with the legislation sponsors. An ordinance amending the electrical code to require specific certifications for electrical work. Please stay tuned for an update on that one, maybe at the next big meeting, if not later. And then an ordinance amending the building code to allow DBI to waive the annual registration fee for vacant or abandoned commercial storefronts. We are currently working with the mayor's office as well as the city attorney's office on that proposed legislation. And I do think we'll bring that back to you next, uh, next month with a presentation as a separate agenda item. 
And then one last ordinance I'll mention that I don't have a slide for because it's not been introduced yet, but I wanted to give you advance notice of. There's an ordinance upcoming that would make technical edits to the findings that support our local amendments to the San Francisco building codes, including green building code, mechanical code, and plumbing code. That ordinance wouldn't actually make any code changes, only changes to the supporting files, listing findings that are specific to San Francisco, and that's at the request of the Building Standards Commission. Just a little preview for you there, which uh, on an ordinance that will be referred to you once it's introduced, so I think at your October meeting. Next slide. Next, I have an update on a hearing that took place. The, board, uh, the board's government audit and oversight committee held a hearing on strategies for apartment building fire prevention and support for victims, including the city's current protocols and resources available for those facing displacement. The fire department and human services agency were asked to present at that hearing and DVI got a belated invitation to participate. So big thanks to acting deputy director of inspection services, Matt Green, for attending that hearing on behalf of DVI and sharing our role in emergency response to apartment fires and the security obligations, and especially the security obligations of property owners after a fire. The committee members expressed their desire for strong coordination between city departments um, to inform displaced tenants of their rights and available services. Those efforts are led by HSA, but currently the Red Cross, volunteer, uh, Red Cross volunteers respond to fires and provide emergency shelter assistance and information, obviously a wonderful service, but the committee chair, Dean Preston, felt that that, that response might not be as robust as it could be if it were led by city staff. Uh, so that's an ongoing conversation and we'll have more later on that. Next slide. Moving to state legislation, it's been a busy couple of weeks in Sacramento at the end of the legislative session. Uh, each house had until September 14th to pass bills, and now Governor Newsom has until October 14th to sign the bills that were passed. Next slide. One such bill passed by the legislature, but not yet signed by the governor, at least as of 9.30 this morning, is AB 1114, authored by San Francisco Assembly Member Matt Haney. We do expect the governor to sign the bill, which would require DBI to determine whether a building permit application for housing development projects whether that application is complete within 15 days of the application being submitted. So that's the application phase. And then during the plan review phase, for projects with 25 units or fewer, DBI and all other permit reviewing agencies, so Public Works, Fire, PUC, and so on, we must complete our review of the permit application within 30 days and if the project's not code compliant, the applicant will be provided with comprehensive request for revisions, or otherwise we would issue the building permit. And then for projects with 26 units or more, DBI and the other agencies must complete review within 60 business days, and again, either issue a comprehensive request for revisions or a building permit. And that concludes my presentation. Happy to answer any questions. Um, just one question on the awning and sign fee waiver. We requested that there be reimbursement for that. I'm assuming that that was not granted. You are correct. We did advocate okay. for that. We definitely <laughs> asked for it and gave you a recommendation, um, but unfortunately we were unsuccessful. Thank you. Next we have item E, update on inspection services. 
Um, good morning, commissioners. I'm uh, Matthew Green, acting deputy director for inspection services, and I'm pleased to provide an update on the activities and performances of our inspection services division. Um, first slide, please. Uh, in August 2023, the Building Electrical and Plumbing Divisions conducted 11,030 inspections. 93% of those inspections were conducted within two business days of the date requested by the customer, meeting our target of 90%. Uh, next slide. In the same month, our housing inspection services conducted 767 inspections, with 133 of them being routine inspections of multifamily housing. Next slide. The building electrical and plumbing divisions received 532 complaints and responded to 99% of them within three business days, well exceeding their target of 85%. Additionally, our code enforcement division sent 88 cases to director's hearing. Next slide, please. Uh, lastly, our housing inspection services received 350 non-life hazard complaints and responded to 89% of them within three business days. For life hazard and heat complaints, housing received 18 complaints and responded to 78% of them within one business day. Um, housing inspection services also abated 449 cases with a notice of violation and sent 52 cases to director's hearings. Um, if there are any, aren't any questions, I'd like to yield to uh, um, Chief Housing Inspector uh, Jamie Sambamatsu who's gonna go into a little more depth on a typical uh, housing enforcement case. No Good morning, Commissioners. Uh, James Sanbon Matsu, Chief Housing Inspector. Uh, we were asked to share a case to illustrate uh, some of our work. Um, our district inspectors are out in the field dealing with very difficult situations every day. Um, the case that we are showing today is the work of Ben Ng, who is here today. Um, he has very deep roots in the community. Uh, we wanted to give um, other voices of our staff the opportunity to speak to you. So uh, Senior Housing Inspector Luis Barahona, who is the, also the coordinator of the Code Enforcement Outreach Program and the SRO Collaboratives, is going to produce, uh, present this case. Good morning, Commissioners. Thank you for allowing me to present a, a case from uh, Inspectoring. Um, if we can get the, uh, the thank you. Um, so, uh, on March 31st of 2023, a tenant in a building on a Ferris Street complained about ceiling damage in their bathroom. Housing inspector Binning called the tenant on Monday, April 3rd, which was the Monday after that Friday. Um, and Inspector Ng was able to schedule a um, an inspection and perform an inspection on that that same on that very same day and issued a notice of violation. Um, next slide, please. Um, here are some pictures of what he saw um, when he came to do the inspection. Uh, as you can see, there is a, a large um, hole in the ceiling uh, of this bathroom. Um, so details of the notice of violation, uh, which he wrote up on April 3rd, uh, he cited to repair damaged ceilings and walls. Um, and uh, it says to repair huge hole in ceiling of bathroom in an approved paint in an approved manner, repaint all surfaces. Once repairs are completed, cracks on walls are also observed in the living room. Um, and this was mainly in the bathroom that, where the damage was. Um, next slide, please. 
Uh, inspectoring returned on May 4th uh, to do a reinspection um, per the reinspection date on the NOV and noted that the items were partially corrected. Uh, he returned on May 15th for a second reinspection and confirmed that the work was complete. Uh, next slide, please. And that is the after picture of the repair that was done um, after Inspector Ng issued uh, the notice of violation. Um, next slide. Thank you, that is our case. And uh, Ben is here if you have any questions um, about this case or anything that you'd like to know more about. Thank you very much. Um, thank you so much for the presentation. Was this part of a routine in uh, inspection or was this a complaint-based inspection? Complaint-based inspection. Thank you. Any other questions? Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Um, is there any public comment on the director's report items 7A through E? Um, any remotely? Okay, I'm seeing none. Next, we are on to item eight, update regarding DBI reforms. Good morning, Interim President Toot, uh, Commissioners. My name is Chris Vergara. I'm the Compliance Manager for DBI. I'm just going to go over the reform initiatives and the controller's recommendations and give a brief update on both. Um, so what is the reforms initiative? So to further the public's confidence in the department's management, operations, and oversight, we identified uh, several initiatives to improve our processes, develop staff, and enhance transparency with the public. So this, was, this reforms initiative started back in May 2021, as Director Ridden mentioned, but it was augmented by the controller's recommendations in their public integrity report back in September 2021. So that included additional uh, reforms and uh, recommendations. Next slide. So what are the areas of the reforms? The reforms impact every division within DBI, including management, admin, including HR, records management, the MIS services, uh, inspections, as well as permit services. Uh, next slide. So the controller's uh, recommendations basically outline uh, eight things that they, uh, which was already incorporated in our own reform initiatives, but had additional ones to mention. So number one, ethical tone. They wanted so, us to work with the BIC to enhance um, uh, good ethical tone from the top down and uh, stress the importance of compliance with ethics and laws and rules. Uh, number two was to encourage the use of the whistleblower program. Uh, and uh, number three is to develop an internal compliance program. Number four, uh, make permit tracking system improvements. Uh, number five, assuring that there is supervisor quality assurance reviews. Number six is internal certifications, which basically is acknowledgement of all our internal policies by staff. Number seven, as uh, mentioned earlier, we're conducting fees and penalties reviews. And number eight is public outreach and education. Uh, next slide. So I'm going to go over each one. Uh, ethical tone, so as I mentioned, uh, the controllers, this is one of the controllers' recommendations. The BIC should work with DBI to ensure a good ethical tone from the top and reiterate the importance of compliance ethics and rules. So we've been doing that by uh, being uh, uh, readily uh, transparent and uh, responsive to all requests by the BIC. 
Uh, we've also uh, created an internal staff anonymous reporting tool. So this is separate and apart from the controller's whistleblower program. We have our own internal uh, whistleblower program for staff to utilize to report any uh, issues. Um, and number three, uh, we've updated our website to increase transparency and accessibility. So uh, I, I, our communication director previously in a previously uh, BIC meeting, he uh, uh, described all the enhancements we made to the website. It was completely revamped. It was translated to multiple languages. It became more customer-centric and service-focused. And uh, part of uh, that uh, in the website is that inspector notes would and corrections would have to be visible and displayed online to increase transparency. Uh, next slide. So the whistleblower program. Um, so uh, the controller's office recommended we encourage and remind staff. We send out quarterly reminders via email to staff, uh, as, as well as the internal unethical reporting tool, uh, as well as the city's gift policy and reporting requirements in the Form 700. Uh, it's basically reminders to staff and allegations of to report allegations of deficiencies, inequality, and delivery of government services, wasteful and inefficient government practices misuse of city funds and improper activities by city government officers and employees. And one of the successes we've done with the controller's office with the whistleblower program is we've standardized our processes in our investigation and in uh, reporting and uh, uh, writing up a comprehensive response. And it's met with some praise from the controller's office because uh, when I first came in, there was a number of uh, whistleblower complaints coming in, and there was a lot of back and forth uh, in terms of uh, conducting investigation and the questions they have. But since we've standardized our process of an investigation and, and our response, uh, many of the whistleblower complaints, uh, complaints have been closed out with uh, less follow-up. Um, next slide. The compliance program. So it's just me right now, but there was a number of things that the controller's office wanted us to do. Number one would be perform an annual risk assessment. And now this is still in development as I uh, got uh, acclimated to what the DBI operations is, but two of the main things that they wanted us to do was number one, track same day inspection schedules and out of district inspections and the validity of those inspection approvals. And number two, uh, system to flag inappropriately expedited review of project plans or unauthorized approvals. Uh, I haven't uh, developed the template of the annual report yet, but I need some data and work from our MIS uh, to create reporting tools to track these things. So the first thing I did was try to develop standardized operating policies and procedures out of this. So one of the things in number two, you'll see inspection and scheduling and assignments. So we finalized a OPP that formalized what was pretty much already in practice, uh, describing how projects or uh, inspections were scheduled as well as assigned. So basically it discouraged or it, it, it advised all the inspection divisions that all out of district inspections were not permitted unless there is uh, senior uh, inspector approval, some prior authorization in that form. So now uh, there's a, a, a process where any out-of-district inspections is uh, pre-approved by a senior inspector. And what I want to do is work with MIS to develop a reporting tool for myself so I can monitor and track uh, all the same-day inspections and out-of-district inspections to track any trends, whether or not there's any flags in that regard, and include that in the annual re assessment report. So 
I could meet with the division leads and the inspections and say, hey, I noticed there's a number of out of district inspections. Is there a justification or reporting that? Because right now it's manually tracked by the senior inspectors, and I need a comprehensive report to oversee all that to put into the uh, annual risk assessment. Um, another uh, operating OPP that we've developed is uh, formalize our permit suspension and revocation policy. Uh, basically, uh, it, it, it uh, describe the review and approval process with suspensions having had the final approval by the chief inspector, but revocation, the most egregious or the, the last resort of, uh, of um, a permit revocation it would need to be approved by the director. So it's a formalized policy now that requires the director's approval to be revoked. Uh, number two, number th 2C is uh, the 48-hour editing lock inspection records. I know a member of the public uh, previously in uh, one in the big meetings, they uh, expressed uh, concern about the integrity of our data. So these are one of the tools that we've already implemented into our systems. Basically, all inspection records are locked after 48 hours. So after an inspector enters something into the system in PTS, after 48 hours, they're unable to uh, change any records. This will protect the integrity data from staff retroactively changing something and uh, and if they needed they made a genuine error that we develop a process of approval that they would have to work with um, senior staff to get approval to change the record and work with MIS uh, our uh, IT department to actually make the change and we would track that in a report of all the changes made to the system and in the data uh, number three uh, identify permit application deviations so I'm going to be working with Neville in the upcoming months to develop system tools to identify instances of permit applications deviating from established procedures. And I know Neville's given uh, past presentations and all the th new uh, guidelines and uh, things that they've done in the, in, for permit staff, and uh, I want to integrate a compliance portion into those processes to assure that there are no uh, deviations from the established procedures, and if there is, it is documented in a way where I could review it and go over with them in regular meetings. And uh, he's uh, advised me as well that uh, senior staff are already performing spot checks on plan reviews. Uh, number four, training on permit plans and reviews and inspections. So training is ongoing. I know with the inspection divisions, they hold like bi-weekly meetings. And in that, there's always uh, training tailgates within those meetings, going over all the new processes or uh, required trainings uh, with further division. And uh, permit uh, services also has uh, their uh, weekly meetings and they go over training modules at that time too. And lastly, the adherence to the statement of incompatible activities, code of professional conduct, and uh, DBI policies. So what we developed there is an acknowledgement form. So during performance reviews every year, HR will have staff uh, sign acknowledgement forms and distribute the SIA forms, the code of professional conduct, to make sure everyone's aware of these policies and it basically imputes the knowledge of them that they're responsible for being compliant with all those policies. Uh, Next slide, please. Uh, permit tracking improvements. So we made some system updates to PTS to ensure the complete and accurate data, adequate controls to deter unauthorized modification records and maintain the integrity of the data, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, so DBI requires that all inspections 
are complete and recorded in PTS before final sign-off is completed. Uh, I mentioned the 48-hour lock of the inspection records and the, the process that we developed to edit any locked inspection records requires prior approval. In addition to that, uh, MIS has an audit log that tracks any changes to data. So our IT department is able to generate a report of like say there's a request for a, um, a property to look into the any changes made to PTS or in the system uh, for that property, they could generate a report. It's not as user-friendly, there's a lot of data. We'd have to narrow the, what specifically the member of the public is looking for, but it could track any change within the system uh, in this audit log. So that was important that the controller's office recommended that we maintain an audit log and we're able to generate something to, to track any changes made to the system. So that, that that's definitely something uh, worth noting in uh, improving the integrity of our data. Uh, next slide. Supervised quality assurance reviews. So uh, the inspections, divisions, and permitting uh, services, they've increased quality control measures. Uh, chief inspectors review daily inspection activity for inspectors and senior inspectors in their division. Chief building inspector reviews all NOVs and certificates of final completion. Plan review uh, the spot checks of their staff work product. Uh, Neville's established a plan review checklist and guidelines for resubmittals and uh, rechecks. So there's a number of things that have been done to improve uh, staff work product and staff training so they're aware of all the things that they're responsible for doing and crossing off these lists. Uh, next slide. Uh, internal certification, as I mentioned before, uh, we're having staff do an annual acknowledgement form and providing them all the information regarding the whistleblower program, the code of conduct, the conflict of interest rules, the policy on gifts and SIA, all those things uh, would have to be acknowledged by staff every year, which was another recommendation by the controller's office. Uh, the fees and penalties review, uh, I think uh, Alex, or director, Deputy Director uh, Kossinen went into detail regarding the fee study that we're conducting. Uh, Public outreach and education. Uh, we continuously make website updates, provide more information, and educate the public on permit inspection processes. Uh, we've created a number of customer checklists and clear guidelines and requirements, as well as the public advisory uh, meetings that we hold uh, uh, to advise uh, the public of all the improvements that we've made within the department. Uh, last slide. So other completed reforms that we have, uh, we've standardized interview, hiring, and onboarding processes. Our HR department has done that, established a standard of posting, recruitment of a minimum of two weeks. We've instituted uh, pre-inspections for en enhanced uh, quality compliance, which is our ECC, expanded compliance control measure. We've improved our complaint information webpage with details for customers on how to report concerns, developed the process for reporting repeat code violators to appropriate state licensing boards. Uh, we've conducted cybersecurity assessment training for MIS managers, and we've completed the secure share implementation for records management. And that is the conclusion of my presentation. I'm here available to answer any questions. Okay. Commissioners have any questions or okay. Um, just a, a few questions on some of the, there, there's some items here that definitely seem like they should have measurable outcomes. Yeah. And so I'd like to see those in the future. I don't expect you to give that to us right now. You weren't prepared to do that. Yeah. Um, I, are you, but 
in general, are you actually seeing participation in uh, the things like the internal complaint uh, system you've set up um, or the whistleblower protocols? Are you actually seeing um, yes, engagement? Uh, yeah, definitely with the whistleblower complaints. When I first came on board, there were like dozens coming in. But I think it was beneficial to get these whistleblower complaints because it helps improves our processes. And we start understanding what the members of the public see of DBI. Majority of it was uh, just a misunderstanding of our internal processes and what goes to which division or department or who's responsible for what. So that even if it's a, a planning issue or a DPW, they have, there's a tendency to blame DBI for a lot of things. So in response to the whistleblower complaint, we developed this comprehensive investigation where we outline, okay, the, here's the issue, this is what the member of the public is complaining about, the reason for this misunderstanding is this, and then I would attach a complaint data sheet to show like all the workup that has been done to address the complaint, and I think this has made a lot, a lot of headway in, uh, in repeat similar types of complaints that come in, because once the general public, or once there's an understanding of how we work, and I think that's a testament of how much outreach that we're doing and trying to explain to the public that uh, DBI is not so mysterious. It's, it may be complex, but there's a, uh, there's a way we do things, and, and the, it's important that we explain that thoroughly and uh, to the public. But we've seen improvements in that regard, and uh, in what was the second part? I'm sorry, the, the whistleblower complaint and... And then your internal um, complaint system, are you seeing engagement? Yeah, the internal, there, there, there's been more uh, complaints submitted to the controller's office with corona. The internal ones are more like personnel issues, like uh, someone didn't wear a mask or someone is displaying something in their desk that's inappropriate or something like that. But it's nothing regards our operations, the internal. Even the, the ones that go to the controller's office, some of them were from internal staff, as written. So they're using the controller's office whistleblower more so. I do have a number of questions. Um, thank you, first of all. Um, on the question of the annual risk assessment, I think this is something that is really at the heart of the controller's recommendations. Um, so I heard you say that you needed data to create the tracking tools. What's the status of that? What's the timeline? Like, how, what is your expectation, the department's expectation of being able to, to realize that? So some of the things like the, so my primary focus when I came in was, was dealing with the inspection things. So some of those tools in, in terms of inspect, uh, tracking same-day inspections and out-of-district inspections. That has been in the works, but not finalized because MIS is, has so many projects in there. I'm, I wanted it done by the, the end of the last fiscal year, but they were being overloaded. But I, and to, uh, that, that's my priority right now, uh, to get that done. Hopefully by the end of this calendar year, I'm gonna follow up with MIS and provide you an update when that could be rolled out because I know there's something develop right now, but it's not in a way that I could get a report and look at it and talk to the div inspection division leads, hey, let's go over this. Uh, I've noticed these trends and things of that nature. I need to develop that with uh, MIS to get that rolled out. And I'm hopeful 
that we uh, will have something working and functioning by the end of the calendar year. Uh, okay. So the, crossing the, my fingers. Is the data already in the system? It's just a matter of how you're get you're not able to pull it out of the system right now in a way that you can provide yes. the analysis. Okay. Yeah. So okay. there there so it. We could utilize what's being inputted in the inspection scheduling system, and then MIS could. I just need a, a compliance needs to be looped into that, and to be able to aggregate those reports and show me the data, because I wouldn't be able to look at each individual one. Yeah. Right. It has to be synthesized. Yeah. Okay, but you you have this the structure for the MIS team to then implement, so you can pull the tools. Like that that work has been done already. It's just the actual. For the inspection scheduling, yes. Uh, the other one that I we need to look at and develop that hasn't been developed is the uh, a system to flag inappropriate expedited review of project plans and unauthorized approvals. I'm going to have to understand how that is flagged, how we could look at that, and I have to work with Neville with that and, and MIS to be able to properly uh, develop that system tool. Okay. And do you have, are you thinking, fiscal year 2025, end of 2024, what is your kind of vision for the expectation on that? Uh, I'm for, for the annual risk assessment or the tools? For the data, oh, yeah, for, for, for having, uh, for operationalizing the data to flag the expedited reviews and uh, unauthorized inspection. That, I wouldn't be able to estimate the time, okay. I'm working on the inspection ones first, but after that's completed, I'm, I don't know how difficult it will be because sure. I'm going to have to try to work with Neville to figure out how how could we track these and determine okay. if it's been uh, expedited or not. Yeah. Understood. But, yeah. Okay. Sorry. Thank you. Um, is this is I actually just another answer this question? Is all inspection work? done within the PTS system or when there's a complaint that's a notice of violation that's not originally related to a permit, is that also in the PTS system or is that in a different system? Uh, I believe it. I'll defer to Matt Green, but I believe <laughs> everything is in, captured in PTS in terms of the workup in, for inspections. But Hi, I'm Matthew Green again. Um, so there's the permit tracking system as well as the complaint tracking system, which both part of the Oracle um, computer system, sorry. Okay. But um, yes, yeah, so all their work is tracked there. They should be tracking, you know, um, for complaints, they'll be tracking phone calls, uh, site visits, NOVs issued, and then under actual issued permits, every inspection will be scheduled there. Okay. I don't think they would actually be scheduling all the, or sorry, documenting all the phone calls under the inspections. It's basically just scheduling times, but yes, the work is there. Okay, thank you very much for, for helping me understand that. Um, and then, so do these reforms also apply to the complaint tracking system or just to the permit tracking system? It applies to all. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And then, so the one of the one of the pieces um, of the controller's report was regarding fees and penalties. Obviously, we are collectively doing a lot of conversations about the fees. Yeah. Has there been any conversation about penalties? Or is there anything about penalties? Do you have any more kind of information from the controllers thinking on what, on, on the penalty portion that their thinking was that this would deter bad behavior? Uh, I would defer to Alex and the executive management. If they're having an internal discussion regarding penalties, they would advise me uh, as an update to the reform whether those discussions, but 
I have not heard uh, any discussions. Sorry. Wait. As of right now, uh, the penalties are mandated by the what's stated in the building code, and uh, we are not engaged in discussions about uh, making adjustments to those uh, penalties at, at this point in time. But it's an ongoing conversation. Do you know when the last time yeah, they were increased? Didn't we go through that pro or make the recommendation for increase last year? There was some. There was a change last year. It's a comprehensive. Talk into the microphone. Oh, sorry. Didn't we last year? I, maybe it was specific fees, but I can look back. But or specific penalties. Um, for there, specific violations. Yes, and there was a whole conversation around the San Bruno yeah. site. Yeah, I, I do. I have to go back and look yeah. at that. Yeah. I can we look did at have a conversation, now. yes. Okay. Okay. The, so I guess, did anything come of it? Yeah. <laughs> did it move forward? <laughs> uh, yeah, if you uh, wouldn't mind. Um, for, oh, sorry. Oh, Deputy City Attorney Rob Kapla, there uh, was comprehensive legislation on planning and building code penalties for oh. certain violations, including demolitions, that. Um, uh, I believe it's in the legislative update, but it, it's it's in effect. It's in the code as of today. Okay, thank you. Um, and then my last question is: How many people are on the enhanced quality compliance list now? I, I think it's just currently Santos, uh, <laughs> but okay. no one else. But we, rev I think we review it every. You know, if there's been more three or more violations within the last 18 months, there'd be someone new. Okay. But I, I, I've only seen Santos on the list. Oh, I see. Uh, <laughs> I see someone walking there towards might be the mic. In the pipeline. <laughs> well done. <laughs> we should. Have I mean, te technically, there's only one on it, the, but there's one more is qualified that we're going through the the report okay. that we're going to present to uh, the director. So okay. there will be. It all goes as a plan. There'll be two by the okay. next time we meet. Well, it's unfortunate to hear, but I'm glad that the yeah. policy is in effect for that okay. reason. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and that concludes my questions. Um, does anyone else have any questions? Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, is there any public comment on item eight? Any remotely? No, okay, seeing none, we are on to item nine. Update on the findings and recommendations of the investigation into the March 2023 glass failures in San Francisco high-rise buildings. Hi, good morning, Interim President Toot and members of the Commission. My name is Neville Pereira. I'm the Deputy Director of the uh, Permit Services Division. I do want to acknowledge, uh, so my presentation today is on a summary of the um, investigation we did on the, uh, for the storm damage, the windows that uh, that potentially or, or seemed like they blew out during the March storms. I just want to acknowledge uh, the work that uh, Janie Chan did on this. Uh, she is the technical services manager um, who spearheaded most of this work. Uh, she was unable to make the presentation today. Okay, so we can go to the first slide. So I'll be talking about the, um, just basically giving an update on the introduction of uh, what led to this report. Um, talking about the findings that we found in the report uh, as a result of the report, recommendations and next steps. Go to the next slide. 
So if you remember, um, back in March, we had some severe windstorms that affected uh, uh, seven buildings that had about 30, 30 panes of glass that blew out. Um, and so it seemed like there was a systemic problem with, with our buildings and the way uh, windows were installed. And um, what happened was um, immediate legislation was passed to inquire into uh, store, uh, buildings that were 15 stories and above, post-1998 vintage, just to look at um, uh, what, what happened with their buildings, uh, I mean, with, with their, uh, to look at their win installation of windows in the facade and produce a report to the DBI on those findings. <clears throat> Subsequent to that, the, um, the structural sub subcommittee and the code advisory committee got together with DBI and said, look, rather than having all these people go out and, and do some random inspections on their buildings, let's focus their attention on, on certain things. Let's invite a, a, a professional in uh, to investigate these things and then make recommendations and have a more focused attention to this. Next slide. Okay, so as a result of that, then we went out and hired um, WJE Associates with Janie Elsner's um, Engineering Incorporated to investigate uh, these glass failures. That particular company is known, is notable for their work in, uh, in forensic um, uh, investigation and the, these types of uh, issues with facades and, and in particular windows and glazing. Uh, so they, they were the top candidate for that. Um, they investigated all these, um, these seven buildings, uh, the 31 panes total, and we'll go into detail in the next slide on each one of these, um, these buildings. Uh, their, their report um, is summarized here in this matrix for you. <clears throat> So what I'll do here is uh, I won't go over all of the, these in, in exact order as they appear here. I'll go over the high, um, high confidence valued uh, buildings first and then go into the moderate and then the low confidence uh, buildings. So we'll start up with, um, with 555 California Street. This was uh, a high level of confidence for understanding that thermal stress was uh, responsible for uh, this breakage. We actually have um, evidence that th this breakage happened prior to the storms and it was just dislodged during the storms. Um, the evidence of this uh, was based on photographs <clears throat> predating the storm showing that broken pane up there emails uh, between the maintenance crews and also um, the breakage pattern that was actually there. Uh, next, we'll talk about 580 uh, California Street. This was immediately opposite the 555 building. There was evidence of broken glass from the 555 building on the roof of 580, which indicated that that blown out glass had traversed over the street, impacted the building across, and then subsequently caused breakage of those panes. And so that, um, again, that was pretty, uh, there's a very high probability, prob or confidence of, uh, of that outcome there. 
<clears throat> Next, I'll talk about 301 Mission uh, Street. This uh, is a known issue. DBI was aware of the stay arms. These are the, the arms that hold the window open uh, on that building. Uh, the building was in, actively engaged in replacing these stay arms. And so the, the, the broken window pane was a, a stay arm failure, which caused the, the window essentially to blow out and come back in and break. Um, and so again, high confidence of our, our assessment there. The building immediately across at 350 Mission Street um, was likely impacted by this because, again, there was evidence of glass from the 301 building um, on the adjacent building. Um, so the, it, was, it was apparent that the, the, the glass had blown out and impacted the building across at 350 Mission. <clears throat> so next we'll go to four, 1400 Mission Street. This building has had a history of breakages in the building, of, of glass breakages in the building. Um, WJE, the firm that was actually investigating this, had actually done some prior work on that building regarding its, uh, its existing or its prior window breakages and had determined that um, there was contamination within its uh, facade glazing, uh, nickel sulfate, when, when it's introduced into uh, glass, it's an impurity that manifests itself within the first 10 years or so of that glazing being installed and um, <coughs> subsequently causes the, 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 the pain to break. <clears throat> Again, it was primarily because of the history of this building that we were made, able to make that assessment um, that the breakage was um, was made prior to the uh, to the storm, as well as probably related to the nickel sulfide um, impurity. We'll go back up to the top of the list on so the next one, uh, uh, 50 California. We're moderately um, confident about this. Uh, breakage here. Spandrel glass is that glass that is not in front of a window. It's, it's essentially between floors. You're looking up at a building, you see a, a, an edifice of glass, but w w some panes uh, are sometimes span between floors or between uh, buildings that you can't ordinarily see from a room. That glass is sometimes um, Interface with either drywall or insulation that that that, that that's up against the, the the glass. It essentially, when it gets heated by the sun, it creates a an uh, an uneven distribution of heat on the glass, and therefore much more prone to breakage. This is one of those instances where it was spandrel glass, um, and and also the fact. Uh, that there was construction uh, happening in the in the unit. It was also known that uh, um, there was insulation directly again in, in contact with the glass, uh, and so uh, that was related to to that. Not necessarily not necessarily the the wind coming uh, picking up and and um, causing the the glass to break. Um, lastly. We have 1390 market. This is of low conf. We have low confidence in our assessment here, but we um, the firm was able to make some some general um, extrapolations. 
there was um, glass, bro glass broken on, on level 28. Um, that was evidence prior to the storm. We had photographed that shows prior to the storm that, that, that had broken. This was, again was spandrel glass that's not easily noticeable by the maintenance cr uh, crew and, and, and so on and so forth. So during the storms, that glass was just picked up and, 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 and thrown out. At level 12, um, the glass had blown inward. Um, that was likely the result of debris or the wind uh, forcing it inwards. Um, they had made some analysis on that and determined that the, the glass was a, of a particularly low strength. So that's, that's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of hypothesizing there. That's the reason why we have low confidence uh, on that. So that's the assessment of the seven buildings, probably a little more, t more detail than you, you wanted to know. But if we can go to the next, um, next slide. So these are the, the uh, five uh, causes of breakage. The thermal stresses, uh, debris impact, and um, window hardware are, are of high confidence where we, we readily know that those are, um, you know, modes of failure there. Um, actual wind loads, um, the, the, the probability that the, the, the wind caused these failures is uh, of, of low, um, low confidence there. And then of glass contamination. Again, we have uh, we have a history on some of these buildings that we breed a high high confidence of our assessment there. Next slide, please. <clears throat> so the main outcomes um, or the recommendations of this report is that uh, facade designers um, need to avoid the use of spandrel glass or at least tempered glass in that. Because tempered glass, uh, there, there are two forms of glass that are used on these these building facades. Tempered is the ones that you have on your your windshield of your car, right? When they when they sh shatter, they, they break into um, tiny tiny pieces. Um, laminated glass is preferred on those because if you have an outer breakage, the inner inner glass uh, glass layer essentially holds the glass together. Uh, we're asking that building owners pay particular attention to the maintenance of their facades. So when they send window washers down, for example, there should be a report that is uh, generated at the end of that window washing um, ex exercise to note any imperfections or cracks or you know other broken glass there. This documentation is critical to this program as we make recommendations because a building that has good uh, good maintenance record is then you know uh, able to uh, to essentially prove that the, the owners are 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 aware of um, you know the the weaknesses or the the breakages in their building, and so um, the last this, the the last bullet on this is that uh, we. As a result of these recommendations, we were, uh, were asked to look at our existing facade ordinance. Our existing facade ordinance was really created to look at the building masonry brick or corbels you know, that are attached to the outside, not necessarily glass. So we're going to amend our existing facade ordinance to now look at glass specifically every um, not only the 10 years, which is a frequency for our existing facade ordinance, but now to introduce every five years a visual inspection. If you can imagine every five years a design professional gets, gets hired by the building owner to look at their building, <clears throat> that engineer comes in and 
essentially reviews maintenance records to see if there was a history of breakage and essentially is able to make a, determin a determination whether a detailed evaluation is needed or they can just stop there uh, at that general, um, that general inspection. This way it doesn't become overly burdensome on, on the uh, building owner and an expense, but it also introduces uh, a more frequent um, analysis and investigation of this. So any unrepaired issues uh, that, that may result in a falling hazard, a falling hazard are also looked at every five years or so. Okay, next slide. So our recent le legislation that just came out of um, uh, after the storms uh, required that every building 15 stories or more uh, post-1998 prepare a legislation, uh, prepare a report uh, within six months. We have delayed that report um, as a result of um, going out to this, um, this specialty consulting firm. <clears throat> and so uh, what we will now do is create an information sheet um, that that essentially spells out what these buildings need to do in that report based on this um, this investigation. Give them a general idea about the gen the visual inspection that needs to be uh, provided as well as the criteria that needs to be uh, evaluated. That way, all of these buildings come in with a, a focused uh, attention on what, what's needed to do, uh, to be done, and we get a, uh, you know, similar results coming in from all of our building owners. And the next slide. So um, the Code Advisory Committee has reviewed the, the, the report by WJE Engineering, um, and they've essentially uh, looked at the recommendations. What's next is um, we have prepared an information sheet, so staff has prepared an information sheet that that tells the owners what they need to do as a result of this uh, investigation. We will publish that information sheet. It, it uh, doesn't necessarily come, need to come to this, this commission for that. Um, that's just uh, general information for the building owners. And then at a later stage, we'll consider legislation to go back in and change the, um, our administrative bulletin 110 to incorporate, it, uh, to incorporate this facade glass inspection. And that concludes my report. Okay. And okay, we um, at this time we'd like to take a five-minute break, and then we'll come back for any um, questions or discussion on item nine. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
Um, yes, so um, is there, first of all, is there any public comment on um, agenda item nine? Any in person or remotely? Okay, um, seeing none, then we can do the commissioner um, questions. I just have one question. I I uh, have been reading about how this year is supposed to be another really wet winter, so wondering as we're expecting El Nino coming in, if a lot of these buildings that we've been tracking and that already had damage issues with their windows, if we're gonna be prepared for the next round of storms this winter. Right, it's, it's, thank you for that question, um, Commissioner Chavez. Uh, when, when, once we get these reports back from the building owners, uh, we will, they will have an understanding about their current state of their building, if there's broken windows in the south. Um, it was evident, it was clearly evident that it wasn't a wind design issue or, or you know, we got, we got uh, really high winds coming, especially with climate change, it's gonna get worse. It was very evident that this is not the issue that we're dealing with. It's just primarily building maintenance. If you will look at the design forces for these facades are extremely high. They put a jet engine in front of these panes to test them and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah, I really, I, it just sounds like there may already be like pre existing issues with them that get exacerbated by the and, storms and wind and et cetera. So, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. And so, we want to get ahead of that. We want the building owners to understand their buildings uh, ahead of the storms. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks. 
uh, for the the buildings investigated, did the owners or uh, in the investigation was it disclosed their former or present uh, visual inspection practices? You know, if the recommendation is every five years do a visual inspection, uh, have we learned what in those uh, in those buildings that were inspected? Uh, do we know when they were doing their visual inspections or when the last time they had inspected visually the the windows or when their window washers had uh, I don't know uh, reported what they'd found or anything like that? Thank you for that question. Um, so no, there was no consistent response from the building owners. Um, if there was any response at all, as you could imagine, some building owners didn't um, didn't respond to um, uh, to in the inquiry. <clears throat> so the the least we can do going forward is to ensure that building owners respond on a you know on a frequent basis. So every time you send um, a swing stage out to wash windows or for anything else. It behooves the owner to have a uh, maintenance record for that and any any irregularities, or if there weren't any irregularities, to at least state that so that, you know, at their five-year inspection, um, they can produce this 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 log of uh, maintenance uh, regimen and show the, the, the design professional that they're, you know, we've done all this every, Every three, four months, we've we've washed windows. Nothing's there, so there's really you know no nothing to look at. Can we talk a little bit more about file number two two three zero three seven three, the ordinance uh, amending the existing building code to require buildings with fifteen more or more stories after nineteen ninety eight to conduct and submit facade inspection reports and affirm planning department determination under the California CEQA Act. So how will this report um, influence uh, the how that ordinance is amended? So that ordinance uh, refers to the existing facade programs right. that uh, that's primarily looking at the stonework or, you know, the, the, the Everything else except windows, although windows is a part of the the ordinance, it's mentioned in there, um, but there's no emphasis, there's no no guidelines on how to look at it. So is that something? I mean, it seems like we should be leveraging that because uh, what you said was you essentially had owners ignore requests for reports, right? Um, and so if we can, if this ordinance is open for amendment and we're looking at things constructed after 1998, it seems like there's huge opportunity here to use some of the findings from this report to require some additional Absolutely. things from, uh, from these inspections. That's correct, yes. So we're gonna, we're gonna take all of our findings from this thing and incorporate it into that, um, that, that new, uh, or the revised, um, okay. Building code section. And what do you, what what are some of the suggestions that are being made from from this report? Yeah. For so that the ordinance? Um, the the recommendations again to um, if you cannot avoid using spandrel glass on your facade, to at least look at the installation of spandrel glass to ensure that there. Are, is not uh, contact with insulation or drywall on the back of it, which will cause a, you know, uh, uneven distribution of heat, which which 
causes this thermal stress in the glass. So that that will be a part of it. Um, and then also the the requirement to have the owners maintain a log so that they can um, adequately respond to the five-year frequency um, of of glass um, observation. So the 10-year frequency will still continue to where you got to look at a, a detailed report of the facade. So every 10 years, the building, you know, it, it has a tiered system in there based on the, the date of the, the building, um, uh, the, the permit being issued. So uh, these new buildings post-1998 and every building that gets uh, built going forward, after they get their, their certificate of completion, they will be responsible for this, at least this five-year period of glass observation, general observation. Okay, so, so that'll key, be written in. The key recommendations are also recommendations to go into that ordinance. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so avoiding the, like, it, this, this uh, doesn't, I mean, avoiding the use of spindle glass and tempered glass insulation against glass, that's, I know. It's like we can't mandate material usage, can we? No, or, we, we I mean, can't. This we, is we, why we're kind of <coughs> recommending or like this. So you're absolutely right, uh, Commissioner Newman. It, uh, it doesn't necessarily, we, we, I, I, the finished uh, code verbiage is probably not going to say avoid, but okay. to pay special attention to. If you're going to use it, like I said, make sure the installation, we may have a special observation requirement to make sure that okay. there's no insulation packed against it or something okay. like so that. So if anything, if, if we're seeing one of these types of glass use, there may be uh, enhanced inspection or monitoring required. Absolutely. Okay. So <clears throat> I'm having a difficulty uh, distinguishing what is a mandate and what is a recommendation in this report? So can you tell me what are the, what are the mandates that, the, that DBI can do now and what are the recommended practices that we are e either telling business owners we recommend you do this versus what is mandated? Got it. There were, there were no mandates coming out of this report. The, uh, the engineer is not allowed to. They can make recommendations for us to make mandates. Uh, but So the recommendations were clear, and I just went over those with uh, Commissioner Newman here. Um, it's up to us now as we look to legislate this and change the, um, um, the code language about it, um, we can make those mandates in there. Okay, help me understand, thank you. Um, help me understand, sorry. <laughs> uh, Deputy City Attorney Rob Kaplan, I think the, the key recommendations include things that would become legislative mandates if legislation is proposed and introduced to amend the section. So for instance, it would pr uh, broaden the scope of 5F to be clear. That's uh, section 5F of the existing building code. Um, that glazing and building windows, in addition to uh, other material construction facade, is subject to the inspection report. It would be being more prescriptive into what's required, the duration uh, and the frequency of the inspections and the reporting requirements. So they're, they're relatively minor changes to 5F, but they're clarifying and, and redirecting the scope to encompass glass. 
Fantastic. And, th so and those would be mandates for the people, for the building subject to the ordinance. It's just the report itself only creates recommendations that then we would turn into mandates. I'm, thank you. I'm, I think I'm clear on what happens legislatively. So I, thank you for, for that. I'm looking at next steps, bullet number two, publish information sheet and notify owners of six month deadline. Is that independent of legislation or is that if legislation is passed? Um, so the, the legislation that came out immediately after the storms just required every building owner for a building 15 stories and above post-1998 go out and look at their building just in case they're there. So that, the, that was the mandate of that legislation post-storm March, uh, March 2023. Um, our next step for that is just tell them, okay, in responding to this now, we want you to uh, to limit or or just focus your attention uh, on this this visual observation and, and look at your building and respond to it, us that way, as opposed to yeah we looked up and there was nothing to to find out. Uh, I mean nothing to to we, we're actually telling them what to do. Okay, so these yeah. are separate. So the second bullet point deals with existing legislation and the third bullet point deals with potential future legislation Correct. coming with other part. Okay, yes. I, I didn't understand that distinction. Okay. So, um, so there's, uh, so everything that is within the informational sheet is, um, is not related to this, is not related to the report or it's, tell me how this is related to the report maybe. The informational receipt. The report, the, the, the WJE report? Yes, yes. Is there any, <clears throat> are we using new information to create that, the, that reporting requirement or, or to fill in, the, fill in that reporting requirement? So the, the WJE report um, essentially set out what a general uh, visual inspection will, would be, um, which you can, you can provide design professional, licensed architect, licensed uh, um, engineer goes out and do a, does a visual inspection. Th this could be a visual or general inspection is determined to be anything that's six feet or, or greater away from the building. Mm -hmm. You can be on the, an adjacent building, you can be down on the ground with binoculars, you could have a, a drone fly up and, 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 and this. so we, okay. we're going to get into specifics about what what you need to do as a building owner to respond. Okay. So it's not just yeah I went outside and looked up. I see. You got you got to say say exactly what you, what you did. Okay, I, I see the intersection now. So thank you okay. for uh, walking me through all that. Um, I have no further questions. Um, I, except I, be, I believe can you just confirm my understanding is correct that uh, there's a possibility of us coming back uh, with le their legislative timeline is quick is rather quick right. So the legislative timeline is is unknown right now okay. um, because yeah we 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 first got to essentially just get the word out so this six month um, clock is ticking or we're gonna you know reset that get that, those in and then um, follow up very very soon with um, a building code amendment to okay. to change that language yeah okay so we have a little more time than I thought thank yeah. you any other further questions okay thank you. Okay, there are no further questions. Okay, thank you. Okay, um, next we're on to item 10, commissioners questions and matters. 10A is inquiries to staff. At this time, commissioners may make inquiries to staff regarding various documents, policies, practices, and procedures which are of interest to the commission. 
And item B is future meetings and agendas. At this time, the commission may discuss and take action to set the date of a special meeting and or determine those items that could be placed on the agenda of the next meeting and other future meetings of the Building Inspection Commission. Um, the next regular meeting is on schedule for October 18th. And then also for the, um, as a side note, for the members of the litigation committee, we have a tentative date of October 10th at 12 o'clock for an introductory meeting, but I'll follow up with you to see if you're available or not. Okay, so are there any inquiries to staff? Or, or commissioner questions? Future agenda items? Um, seeing none, I guess, then we, then uh, commissioners can contact uh, Monique or I if you have any items for next month's agenda. Yeah, commissioner, Actually, I have one. Um, when we get the fee study back, can we maybe have a special meeting about that so we can discuss it in more depth? I think we'll look at the timing on that. And that oh, suggestion. Thank you. Uh, we noted that request and we will um, look into it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so is there any public comment then on items 10 A and B? Um, I wanted to um, recommend an item. Or, Go ahead. So I don't know if this is a necessary, this is somewhat related to the fee study or doing a special meeting for that, but uh, just thinking maybe uh, if it's possible to do a retreat at some point or just a general, the commission gets together for a period of time I understand we can do retreats, um, and maybe it would make sense to do it in the beginning of the year or something so we can uh, discuss our priorities and our, you know, maybe do some planning that isn't uh, so much ad hoc, uh, you know, which kind of, and when we're doing the monthly meetings, they kind of just necessarily have to be ad hoc. So I just a thought I have. I don't know if I'm proposing it or not. Just wanted to throw okay. it out there. We'll take the thanking. Hey, thank you. That would be. New, I've, I've never heard of that exactly with, with commissions, but sounds interesting. So I'll, uh, <laughs> I will. Uh, Tiny things. Yeah, we'll follow up on it. <laughs> okay. More time together. All right. Um, then next, then we have is item 11, uh, review and approval of the minutes of the regular meeting of August 16th, 2023. Um, is, is there um, a motion to approve? So there is a motion and a second. Is there any public comment on the minutes? Um, seeing none, are all commissioners in favor? Yes. Aye. Aye. Yes. Aye. Any opposed? Okay. Then the minutes are approved. Thank you. Um, next, we have item 12, adjournment. Is there a motion to adjourn? So moved. A second? A second. Okay. All commissioners in favor? Aye. 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 And I'm sure there's none opposed, so we are uh, now adjourned. It is 12.08 p.m. Thank you.